Hello and welcome to TBR Book Dive. My name is Marcus Matheny. I am Sarah Humphreys, and today we're talking about Gideon the Ninth. We are here with the second chunk of Gideon the Ninth, and we are now, after this, we're halfway through the book. Yeah. Um, how are you <laughs> feeling about it? We had a lot happen that we will talk about, but... uh, uh I don't want to talk about too much, like, up top, but... I love this book so much. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about a little bit up top. Like, you know, don't bury the lead. It, it has now hurt me <laughs> emotionally. Yeah. The writing's holding up, though. Still really like that. Uh, more jokes. Love that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it's somehow just getting better. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like... The first chunk is a whole lot of setup, and it's interesting still because, like, Gideon's POV is so strong, and also, like, the dialogue is so good. Um, Mm -hmm. But not a whole lot has been happening before this plot-wise. It's pretty much just been Gideon kind of dragged around by her ear. Um, Yeah, and but you don't really notice that until stuff, like, actually starts happening in this chunk. You're like, yeah, things are happening in this book. And then you're like, just kidding. (laughs) I am really enjoying the recap or the the second read through I'm doing Mm -hmm. Um, in part because in large part because I know the mysteries and I can say that it also is holding up on the reread because I'm like, now that I know more of what's going on and more of the secret things that are happening, I'm reading a lot of characters dialogue. Or things that are happening and being like, huh, that that's still interesting now that I know this secret. And like, not in the mm-hmm. kind of way that it's like, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about. It's often like, that just adds a different color to this already kind of mysterious thing you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, and like, even looking back, like stuff that I know from the end of this chunk is still informing things from the previous chunk where I'm like, Oh, uh, like spoilers. Although I'm assuming that anyone listening to this has already yeah. read these chapters. There will I be heavy so. spoilers for this book, <laughs> and we told you which chapters we're reading for a reason. So yeah, um, maybe stop and read them first. Okay, um, but like the bit with Iantha being just an absolute creep, and then her having like secrets from her own team effectively um, is not surprising, but really does just like add some characterization, even, even looking back, like obviously I didn't go back and reread it, but yeah, because I think the last thing that happened in chapter nine was um, Gideon is eavesdropping on the third house people and Corona Beth and Babs leave and Iante's like, I know you're there. Mm-hmm. And now you're like, but afterwards, as we learn in this chapter, I don't think Corona knows. I don't think Iante told them. Yeah, no, they, they don't know. Like, they're totally blindsided. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, it, yeah, it's just fun. Um, I guess now let's get into it, as otherwise, because I just want to talk about all of this stuff. Hop into it with chapter 10. Cool. Uh, my recaps are short and sweet. So, <laughs> uh, chapter 10, recap. 
Left alone, Gideon wanders around the first house in a rambling, exploratory way. On one of the terraces, she finds Dulcina? Dulcinea. Dulcinea? Uh, swoon. <laughs> and has a very one-sided conversation where she literally says nothing, but gives everything away. <laughs> this scene is so fun. It's just such a fun scene for so many reasons. Like, yeah. One, I mean, sometimes I, there was a while, I try to describe this book as being homoerotic, not lesbian, just because lesbian mm-hmm. gives the idea of romance and maybe like yeah. graphic content that isn't present in this book. But to say no. this book isn't homoerotic slash it has the same level of romance that I guess your typical action movie would have. Yeah. Even though we don't typically qualify, you know, gay books like that. But, um... Yeah. It's just... I feel like they're usually pretty, uh, spicy. <laughs> but I like that this one's not, uh, honestly, which is a lot for me to say right now. <laughs> uh... I think I'm also impressed with how spicy it is, despite not being spicy. Yeah. Just because of how in love with everyone Gideon is. Honestly, so relatable. I don't... (laughs) It's... Yeah, it's really funny how, like, literally somebody breathes and Gideon's like... (gasps) Incapacitated. (laughs) Like, there's literally, um, I think it's this, yeah. There's a quote from this chapter. She was utterly helpless at the word gimp. (laughs) Yeah. It's just... Yeah. Calm down, my girl. (laughs) Yeah, Dulcinea's like, she says something effective. I'd I'd do it, but I'm feeling such a gimp, and Gideon just can't even. (laughs) Yeah. I... Yeah, she knows what she's doing, too. Dulcinea does. Absolutely. um, 100%. Because she's also described as, like, the older woman a Mm -hmm. lot. Uh, Maybe not necessarily in this chapter, but, like, in later chapters. So it's just, like, so... It's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We know she's at least 25 because of what teacher says. So I don't think we... I don't think we ever get an egg. Oh, we do have a canon age. She is 27. Oh, okay. I, I know that when she was first introduced, she was described as having a face where you couldn't quite place the age, and she could have been anywhere from 17 to 35. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the back, don't don't look up and read them yet, but there I'm is <laughs> uh, there's some files on everyone, so we get everyone's ages and a little bit of backstory on them. Okay. I didn't know that, but I will not be looking. Mm-hmm. I try really hard not to look in the back of books before I get there. That's um, just a good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've accidentally spoiled things for myself before, which is my least favorite thing to do. The thing I do most often, which sometimes bites me in the ass and sometimes doesn't, is I like to see whether how many pages the book is, so I kind of know. Because mm. sometimes yeah. they have, like, bone it, like the prologue of the next book in the back of this one. This book does have the prologue to Hero in the back of it. Or, like, 
you know, an appendix or a glossary or a pronunciation guide or all those things. And sometimes they don't. So sometimes it's yeah. like, so it's hard to tell from a physical book, whether you're near how close you are to the end. Yeah. I, I think that's why I like, um, cause I've been using Libby a lot to mm-hmm. read books so that I don't buy a thousand books this year. Uh, and, and I do like that. And you just like click on it. It's like this of this many pages, you know, yeah. uh, it's I, much easier. Now, but. I like that too. My least favorite thing is sometimes Amazon. Cause I use, I go directly through the library, but it's the same thing. And sometimes yeah. Amazon doesn't have the page, uh, the book divided into pages somehow. I don't know how that works, but it's, okay. it's like, it will not give me a page count. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> I guess I'm just reading. <laughs> I guess I am just going to be content to know I am like 17% through this book and there's eight <laughs> minutes left in this chapter based on some arbitrary metric. So, Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> it drives me crazy, but I don't have a choice because, you know, monopolies. Yeah, I think uh, outside of that interaction, uh, the thing that struck me the most about this chapter was Gideon's obsession with the skeletal constructs Mm -hmm. of the first house and like how good they are like flawless even. And I just, I think it's a fun way to show how she doesn't like fully hate her like life and her childhood and where she's grown up. She's just tired of the toxic environment. Cause like she's clearly very, very knowledgeable about like her culture and history and stuff and like necromancy, even though she's not one, uh, not a necromancer. She's just apathetic to it (laughs) at this point, you know? Yeah. It's like, it really is that thing of like the equivalent of like a kid being raised in the small town and like a family of mechanics or whatever. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, she leaves and goes to the big city and, but Finds out she knows a lot more about cars than most people, and it's like almost this, yeah. like, oh, there's there's a sense of nostalgia there, even for something I didn't like. Yeah, and and it's not necessarily that like, oh, she magically likes the ninth house now. Like, no, uh, it's just that that com- that's a complicated relationship with her own history, and I think that that's a fun way to show it. It's just her being obsessed with the skeletals. Yeah. Skeletal constructs. Yeah. Yeah. It's also another indication that as we've established, Gideon is not dumb, even though she's constantly (laughs) being out masterminded. Yeah. She's not dumb. Everyone else is just smarter. (laughs) (laughs) She's currently on planet with like 18 different Machiavellis. And it's just a person. (laughs) I actually don't really think that I'd say that anyone's like particularly more intelligent than her. They just have a different kind of intelligence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mostly just wrote down for Dulcinea stuff. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this gay as fuck Dulcinea scene. <laughs> so that was most of my, <laughs> I just love that she read Gideon in two seconds flat and that's the gayest thing. And <laughs> And I I love it. Uh, you also had a question about, or like had said something about her being incompatible with ghosts was interesting. And I am so worried. This house has to be haunted. Where are the ghosts? <laughs> like they're they're around here somewhere. I know, they have to be. This place is so spooky. Um, 
Well, we'll revisit that conversation (laughs) by the end of this podcast, as you know. Yeah, by uh, the end of this episode, probably. Um, Yeah, yeah. I just, there's just something really interesting. Everything Dulcinea says is really interesting because, and like the character of Dulcinea is so fascinating because everyone Mm -hmm. in this world, as we would put it, is obsessed with death. They're Mm -hmm. all what we would consider necrophiles. Um, Yeah. But even in that world, no one knows how to interact with someone that's dying. Yeah. And everyone's uncomfortable with it. Even, we later learn, even Hero doesn't really know how to engage with it. And Hero literally spends all day at home puppeting her dead parents. Mm Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah. And... I also like that she's very clearly the only character here with like nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, which just makes her even more of a chaotic force, which I think is also probably why Harrow's a little afraid of her. <laughs> yeah. Cause she, she has nothing to lose. She's so unpredictable. She can do whatever she wants. Yeah. She really, she really does exude this sense of like, it does not matter what happens to me because the worst thing that's go that could happen to me is me getting killed, which is going to happen in like a year or two anyway. Yeah. Um, she's already living on borrowed time. I mean, honestly, she simultaneously has nothing to lose and the most to lose. Yeah. Yeah. But she mostly acts like she has nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dulcinea is just such an interesting character in La I mean, and also as Gideon's love interest for this book. It's uh just <laughs> <laughs> That's everyone, but <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, every every time Gideon's like a little bit like oh, that person is so hot, I'm like, I ship it. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in this book is hot. That's all so the, true. Correction. All the women are hot in at least some way. <laughs> um, I have a note about Magnus in here in a little bit. Oh, I am in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> Incredibly. <laughs> this book has hurt me. Um, <laughs> do you want to move on to chapter 11? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Um, okay. Oh yeah. The Do you only, have anything else to say? The only other thing I, I wanted to point out was I don't the extra the last line of this chapter. I read it and I was like, that doesn't really feel like it fits Gideon's POV, but it's also mm-hmm. such a good line that I can't be mad at it. Um. So. Something that happens near the end of this chapter while Dulcinea is talking to Gideon is something she's like, show me, basically show me your swords play. And you have to do it Mm -hmm. because I'm dying. Um, And Gideon's like, okay. And so she like goes. Gideon's like, swords? Yeah, I'm a big fan of swords. (laughs) Um, So Gideon goes into like her cavalier movements and, and is nailing them. And she's like, yes, the training was for a purpose. I am good at this. Yes, yes, yes. And... There's this moment of her letting down her guard, and as she's wrapping up, she I think she puts her hand on the on the the pommel of the long of the rapier longways, like she would be mm-hmm. holding a larger sword, and Dulcinea clocks it and realizes 
And I think she even says something like, uh, or, no, it doesn't look like she says any. No, yes, she does. She's like, she does say something about it. It was on the other page that I was looking. Yeah. She's like, are you used to a heavier sword? And so now Gideon's like, shit, I made. And then basically runs away. Um, <laughs> Big mood. Yeah, which is, you know, Gideon doesn't run, but she, you know, runs away. Um, and, you know, Dulcinea, of course, is just like, I hope we talk again. Um, and as we later learn, hasn't revealed the seat at, at, at the point we have read chapter 19, she has mm-hmm. not revealed this secret to anyone. Um, I think it's also, well, so at the end of this chapter, we get the line as Gideon is running away, where the final sentence is, she said, or Dulcinea says, I hope we talk again soon. And Gideon mm-hmm. basically thinks, uh, she said too much already and all without speaking a single word. Which is a great line. It just doesn't feel like Gideon. I can see that. But it's such a good line that I'm not even mad at it. I mean, she does seem very invested in keeping the secret. And I don't think it's necessarily because of Harrow. I I think that from like some little things in later chapters, it feels like it would be a really big deal if anyone knew anything about Gideon and like I like I think there's a line in a couple chapters uh about like if anyone found out that Gideon wasn't of the ninth because she's a foundling you know uh that I guess it would be a big deal but I don't know if it would actually be a big deal or not that's just kind of what I'm speculating is why she would be upset that Anyone knows that she's not, like, a born and bred cavalier. Because everyone else is, too. Yeah, it is really... It is very ambiguous as to whether anyone would care or not. Because, also, this is spoilers for the next chapter, but we learn that Gideon is pretty fucking good at this. Even (laughs) with how little she has been able to train. Um, Yeah. Maybe it's just, like, the propriety sense, because Harrow clearly has a very strong sense of this is how we are supposed to be, and it's like mm-hmm. we can't express that I had to scramble to find a real cavalier at the last minute, because the other mostly not real cavalier uh, jaunted off to parts unknown. <laughs> uh, Man, that would have been such a disaster. I've thought about that so many times. I'm like, what if Ordis went with her? <laughs> They'd is... all be dead. What a great question, is all I'm going to say to that. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it it is interesting. And I think something that this is playing into that we kind of learn more in a few chapters, I think Gideon wants to be a good cavalier. Yeah, I think so too. She's clearly taking, she is, she, I don't think she's realized it. But I think, but she wants to take pride in what's going, what her job is. Yeah. Um, and and I think that um, it also has something to do with like meeting the other houses and the other cavaliers, because like all the necromancers are obnoxious, uh, but some of the cavaliers are pretty cool actually. Corona's <laughs> um, cool and, too. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, she's hot, but. Yeah. <laughs> 
she's kind of funny though so actually i'll, I'll give it to her yeah, um i think she's cool. yeah <laughs> i she's pretty cool uh i think it has something to do with getting outside of where she grew up too yeah it's it's i guess it is part it is probably also that thing of like if you're meeting new people for the first time you're like oh my god i have to be perfect at everything otherwise they're gonna think i'm weird and yes <laughs> not realize that in fact everyone's kind of seven kinds of fucked up at all times yeah. and it's okay to not be perfect at everything I mean, how is she supposed to know that? She, Yeah, exactly. How would she supposed to know that? The only kid her age is Harrow. Yeah. <laughs> like, Which is something. <laughs> yeah. And the only other kid that's even close to her, ta- her age is Autis, who, because, there's such a huge yeah. spectrum of competence there. <laughs> he only talks to his mom, so, and you cannot convince me otherwise. <laughs> I I'm not going to argue with that sentence. <laughs> all right, that's all I had for chapter ten. If we were ready to move on, yeah, it was a good chapter. I liked it. Mm. Uh, this recap is shorter somehow, uh, even though so much happens in this chapter. Uh, chapter eleven recap: Gideon finds herself invited to start to spar with the other cavaliers she defeats magnus in three moves and while technically losing her match to babs uh is declared the winner i figured we were gonna pick apart this whole chapter and there was no point detailing all of it this to me this is where the book truly begins i mean i know other things happen this is the first scene where we truly get to know the other characters and it's yeah. such a good scene, and it also shows once again how good Muir is at characterization. Um, small mm-hmm. correction, I think Babs is declared the winner. Well, so so that's the thing, is um, he technically won. Mm-hmm. And then she sucker is punches it Dias? him. Yeah. What's the second cast oh, name? Um, Dias, Dias, I think. Yeah. Dias. So, um, Babs gets pissy. He, he gets angry because uh, Dias declares the fight for the ninth, and he's like, "I lost, or like I won when I disarmed her." And she's like, "Yeah, but she kept fighting, so no, you lost." I think what she, I think the point that she is trying to make is that while he won the duel and he yeah. played, he played the game better, but she is the better fighter. Yeah, uh, and I think I think that she declared the fight in favor of Gideon, but might have re- recanted. Yeah. Um, I mean, but at one point it was declared that Gideon won, even though she lost. <laughs> yeah, I. Because um, Corona is the one that's technically calling the match. Oh, it's... I thought that they switched it. No, because they because she was because Dias was like technically you shouldn't be calling the match because because your Cavalier is participating. She's like I'm harder on Babs than anyone else is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So they didn't switch. No. Yeah, they didn't. Oh, I don't okay, okay. think they switched. It is unclear either way. I think, in my heart of hearts, Gideon won that fight. No, I mean... (laughs) And I think it's because I don't like Babs. (laughs) You're not supposed to like Babs. He has a very punchable face. Yeah, and a lot of lip gloss. Yeah. (laughs) 
And yes, he did use lip balm. Uh, but yeah, so she's so fixated. So here's here's the line. Um, or oh, here's the conversation. Uh, Dias says to Babs, "You let your guard down." Turn. Babs says, "The moment the match was over, the moment I got her sword." She says, "Yes, technically." Um, and then he starts getting pissy. He's like, "Everything is the technicals. What are you playing at?" I won, she lost, admit it. And Martha Dias says, yes, you won the bout. The ninth is the less able duelist. I say she is the better fighter. Okay, okay, yeah. So, so yeah, and that's, and that's the, ten- that's been the tension the whole time, right? We already knew Gideon mm-hmm. was really fucking good at swords. Yeah, um, I mean, she studied the blade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... Okay, yeah, so let's let's walk we jump to the end of the chapter. Um, Oops. <laughs> that's okay. So um yeah. basically what happens is Magnus comes up to Gideon at breakfast and is like, Hey, mm-hmm. we're we're gonna uh, a bunch of the Cavaliers are gonna get together and, you know, spar and stuff if you wanna come. And Gideon's like, I haven't talked to anyone for like five days and I'm so lonely and I'm going to come. <laughs> Internally. She <laughs> yeah. would never say that to anyone out loud. <laughs> No, uh, definitely not. So she comes in, and or no, it's not Magnus. It's Corona comes in. Yeah, it's in Corona because that's because there's even the line where Gideon's like, "If I hadn't, ta- if I hadn't been so lonely, if Corona Beth Tridentarius hadn't been so fucking hot." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I also, uh, this is not really anything of importance. It's just a little thing, but. Gideon says something about being like protein deprived or something or like something about like, what is this house's um, opposition to protein or whatever? I can find the actual line. And I'm like, I know too much about cults (laughs) (laughs) and depriving people of protein is very fishy. That's let me see if I can find it. Yeah. She's basically just really bored and lonely, which is what like the first couple paragraphs of the chapter are about and then Corona Beth shows up and you're like this is gonna be good mm-hmm. oh yeah and this when Corona walks in they do that thing where like Gideon goes to shake her hand and then she grabs Gideon's hand like too far down and then pulls mm-hmm. her hand down and kisses her knuckles yeah which I I swooned and I'm not yeah you know, no same <laughs> I yeah I and traditionally masculine in many aspects, including the romantic <laughs> side. And I swooned. Like, I was like, damn, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I found the line. It was, um, it was in this abandoned state that the Cavalier of the Ninth House ate two breakfasts, starved of both protein and attention. Why, why isn't she getting protein? I guess we did. <laughs> we do know that the Ninth House doesn't have a lot of food, right? Like, yeah. they pretty much just eat leeks. So, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. So, yeah. That's the saddest food. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, imagine only being able to eat leeks for 18 years. Um, Earlier when I said something about the people all being, like, not necessarily smarter than Gideon, just intelligent and different ways than Gideon. Mm-hmm. Uh Beth is like the biggest example of that to me. Cause from the conversation that we like overhear between the third house, um 
we know that Iantha kind of thinks that Cronabeth is stupid because she's not like very book smart, but she is clearly so socially intelligent and politically intelli- intelligent. I I think she's so cool. <laughs> Corona is super cool. Um, yeah. That's all I have to comment on that at this moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm sure that she's probably book smart, but so far we know her as socially intelligent, mm-hmm. um, which I think is certainly a very valid <laughs> form of intelligence. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially in this setting. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we also, just even beyond social intelligence, we get... Corona just doesn't just have this effect on Gideon is is mm. what um I marked this down later, but well, this is what happens next, so we can talk about it, I guess. Um okay. so Corona goes with Gideon to this training room and mm-hmm. you know, she walks in and we get this little description of what each of the Cavaliers is doing. All the Cavaliers are there except the eighth. So um for for the folks keeping notes at home. Uh, Martha Dias is the Cavalier of the Second. Um, mm-hmm. Babs, Nabiria's turn, is the Cavalier of the Third. Um, Jean-Marie is the Cavalier of the Fourth, the, the female half of the awful teens. Um, Magnus <laughs> is the Magnus Quinn, Cavalier of the Fifth. Um, Camilla. Yeah, Camilla, Camilla's not there. Camilla Hecht, uh, we haven't met yet, is the Cavalier yeah. of the Sixth. And then... Um, this and then Protesilaus isn't there. He's the hulking meathead that's Dulcinea's cavalier, and Octokizaron isn't there, the eighth, or whatever whatever the old nephew's name is. I don't even remember. Um, um I, I just I, I tr- truly do not know their name because I cannot get over Mayonnaise song. I was just about to say, Gideon exclusively refers to the necromancer Silas Octokizaron, who has a cool name, that's why I remember it, but he is exclusively mm-hmm. referred to by Gideon as the Mayonnaise uncle, and it's yeah. so funny. Yeah, I I know his name is Silas, um, but he is the Mayonnaise he uncle. He is eternally the Mayonnaise <laughs> uncle, yeah. Uh, so we get little descriptions of like what each of them are doing and it's, you know, Martha's standing over there in the corner just kind of looking too cool for everything. Babs is also standing in the corner looking too cool for everything. Uh, and Jean-Marie and Magnus are like kind of half-heartedly sparring, I think. (laughs) And so Corona comes in and it's described as everyone looking up at her because you can't, Corona can't walk into a room without everyone looking at her. It's physically impossible. Yeah. Um... (laughs) And I, you know, just even at the end of a just a scenery paragraph, we get all this description because Muir is so fucking good at characterization. Um, yeah, it, there are so many. Like I, you've already said it, there's so many characters, and they are all so unique. It's it's nice. <laughs> it would be so easy for the mo- for the houses that don't appear as much in the story to be kind of glossed over and utterly forgettable. As it mm-hmm. is, even the ones that are forgettable and like you don't remember their names, you remember kind of their roles, and that's mm-hmm. enough in a story where there are more than eighteen relevant characters. We get we get some talking. Basically, apparently Jean Marie has been beating up Magnus, which doesn't. It's unclear how much of that is actually true or not. Um, 
as we learn, the fifth house is kind of like these parental authority figures over the fourth house, which makes sense. It's so cute. <laughs> um, also, I just learned this by looking into the back of the character ages. I thought the teens were like 16. Isaac, the necromancer, is 13. And Jean-Marie yeah, I... is 14. That's how I was picturing him was 13 and 14, except I think I had the ages reversed, but it's, yeah. uh, I, they're just babies. They are literally just babies, um, which makes everything even more sense. Um, yeah. we get more tiny texts from Jean Marie as Magnus tries to tell embarrassing stories about her being no, five. Magnus. No, Magnus, no. Um, do not tell that story. No, Magnus, don't tell anyone this story. No, Magnus, <laughs> don't talk about me being five. No. It's but, so funny. But the funny thing is, even though I wrote it in that way and you agreed with me, she does not say no at the beginning of either of those lines. I just automatically no. put no at the beginning of everything they say. It's, it's, they're always like withering. Yeah. <laughs> You're like drying up and dying. Uh, I love Magnus so much. Um, I also love his little like bit about himself where he's like, I'm married to my necromancer. You could call me Cavalier Prime married. And I was like, I that's it. I love you. <laughs> yeah. And then we get more characterization because we go through everyone's reactions. I wrote down specifically Jean-Marie <laughs> let out a long noise, like a death rattle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is absolutely what you would happen as a 14 year old girl in a room of all these cool people. And your weird uncle is making terrible yeah. jokes. And most yeah. people are just, like, rolling their eyes. And then I think Gideon says something about writing down the joke for later. Yeah, because she thought it was good. And I'm like, and yeah. It is. So she could use it later. And I'm like, which one are you going to marry? I mean. What, what's she thinking, Gideon? I think it's pretty clear. Uh, there, there are multiple marriageable candidates for Gideon among these, uh, among these uh, necromancers. For sure. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, so she beats him in three moves, and uh, Jean, Jean Marie mm -hmm. uh, is like, Magnus, three moves, Magnus! <laughs> Magnus, three moves! Yeah. Uh, yeah, so basically, it's just like, hey, you two could stop fighting each other. Magnus and uh, Gideon, how about you fight? And we get a really mm -hmm. in depth description of Gideon as the fight starts, and she realizes immediately that she is better than Magnus. Yeah, and, like, I I think it'd be really easy to be like, well, he's probably pretty good, and he probably let her win, but I I just really don't think so. I don't think so, either. I, uh, nothing about Magnus indicates that he is martially, um, proficient. Like, yeah, like, I feel like he's not bad by any means, I just, I, I also don't. Like, he's really nice, but I don't think that that necessarily means that he let somebody who's effectively his equal beat him, you know? Yeah. With Magnus, I really feel like we kind of get the sense that Cavalier is maybe more of a position of status than actual yeah. ability for most people. It, it, it varies a lot from house to house, I think. Like, uh, Martha Dias from the second house, which is like the military house, is really mm -hmm. proficient, and you can tell from this scene, but like, yeah, 
I, it's not really any, you don't really get any sense that Magnus is good at this. And just his reactions, it's just like, you know, he just got his ass kicked. <laughs> I mean, he literally nepotismed his way into the role and he straight up says that. Yeah. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I do like at the beginning of her fight with Babs, um, the line about, I guess, his offhand knife. Mm-hmm. Um, the arms of the hilt curved and hugging Edward in a way that tugged on her memory but did not quite grasp the right file. I I liked that. And also it raises a, lo- a lot of questions about where she's maybe seen it before. But Oh, I didn't even catch that line. Oh, I... I liked it. I think I also partially liked it because um, I can't quite figure out the technology of this setting yet because uh, they have like old like elevators from like hundreds of thousands of years ago, but it feels like the ninth house doesn't have a lot of technology um, and they like fight with swords, which would imply that there aren't guns, but like. I don't there know. Are guns. Yeah. But there are guns. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just I, I'm just trying to figure out the technology and I thought that the file thing was interesting because I was like, ah. But I guess you file things outside of a computer too, but Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I so half step back, after Gideon kicks Magnus's ass, everyone reacts like she's the coolest, like she's hot <laughs> shit. Because she is. Because <laughs> she is. But everyone's just stunned. And so Babs, Nibiria's turn, the Cavalier of the Third, is like, I have to fight her. Yeah. And there's some discussion on whether her fighting immediately after doing a previous bout is fair. But uh, she volunteers and doesn't seem that put off. Yeah, I also feel like everyone's like, she's the coolest because she is like fighting fully robed. <laughs> yeah. And like still has her sunglasses on, I'm pretty sure, and mm-hmm. like the face paint. And she is just like, and she doesn't talk. <laughs> yeah. So I'm pretty sure she's just like this mythical being to everyone else. Yeah, which makes which sense. Is kind of awesome. Yeah. yeah. They, it's really funny because we just got a chapter about how Gideon's like, the game is up. And now we come back to here and everyone's like, mm-hmm. holy shit, the Ninth House nuns are cool. Yeah. But yeah, Babs, so Babs and Gideon fight. It's, as we kind of talked about at the beginning of this chapter, Babs is the better duelist. He's clearly mm-hmm. studied a lot of the game of dueling. But Gideon actually knows how to fight because she didn't study to duel. She studied to go fight in war. And survive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Babs technically wins. He disarms her afterwards. Gideon sucker punches him, which is awesome. It was um, so good. <laughs> yeah. And Babs is upset and is like, I beat her. I'm better than her. And everyone's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're, <laughs> okay, buddy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Whatever. Whatever makes you feel better. Um. Yeah, and he's like really mean about it yeah. too. Uh, to the point where like he's so mean about the ninth and like the contempt that he has for the ninth that it like that Gideon is mad at him because mm-hmm. she's like, no, no, that's my house to hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's just more of like what you're talking about at the beginning of this chapter. It's just really interesting when you're. 
Because this is, in a lot of ways, a coming-of-age story, right? This is Gideon leaving the house for the first time, which is the thing she's always wanted yeah. to do. And your relationship with your home where you grew up is always different when you leave the house than you expected it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's it's complicated. And I I like how complicated it is. Yeah. Because it's... And we once again, we get this instance of, like, no, 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 don't don't talk about my family that way. Like, they suck, <laughs> but don't talk about them that way. <laughs> I hate them too, but you can't say that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh... <laughs> Some of them are okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not all ninth housers. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm fine. Yeah. I glamines, you know, a hard-ass yeah, we battle like her. mom. Yeah. Yeah. Crux sucks, <laughs> but, uh... But we don't have to concede to that. No, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Babs is just pissy. Everyone um, everyone is now infatuated with Gideon. And by everyone, I mean not everyone. Uh, Jean-Marie is obsessed with her now. Um, uh, obviously. Yeah, she's she now thinks like... Gideon is the coolest. I feel like um, the crush that Gideon has on... Um... Wow, the pronunciation of her name left my brain again. <laughs> Dulcinea Septimus. Uh, yes, Dulcinea. Uh, the crush that Gideon has on Dulcinea, I feel like, is kind of mirrored in genre and and her like fascination with Gideon. Maybe not like quite to the level of crush, but like definitely thinks she's the coolest. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of seem like a crush to me. I read it that yeah. way. It, it's cute. I like it. We also don't get any actual description of Jean-Marie up until this point. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't get a lot, but she's described as a brown, brick-like young thing, which I just think is a really funny way to talk about a human. It, <laughs> it is. I also like that she's not described as anything other than terrible until Gideon's like, okay, that one idolizes me. Yeah. I guess she's okay. <laughs> yeah, this is also the first time Jean-Marie talks that isn't in tiny text. Um, yeah, she's just she's just gushing over Gideon. Um, we go back to Tiny Text because Magnus said something about you've got to eat more than vegetables and potatoes, and so Jean Marie goes, "Magnus, potatoes are a vegetable, Magnus." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, her stupid uncle. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the chapter ends with Gideon feeling pretty cool about herself, um, despite technically losing. But then she looks mm-hmm. up and Harrow was watching the whole thing because of fucking course Harrow was watching the whole thing. Yeah. Um, She's everywhere. <laughs> she she is truly everywhere. Um God, there's just so much there's so much cool shit in this chapter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a rich text. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly a rich text. Um <laughs> I it, it is though, like the the way everyone is like like it's a great way to introduce a bunch of characters in a way that feels very natural and like not forced and yeah I I feel like I know a lot about the characters in this scene uh even though they don't necessarily all talk yeah you're so good at giving senses of who people are without them Mm -hmm. talking which is really crazy because she's also so good at characterization through dialogue as well yeah um, yeah. I I wrote down that I would lop a finger off for the ability to describe eyes as well as she does. Um, 
every time someone's yeah. eyes are described, like they are described in these beautiful poetic ma- ways that reveal everything about them as a person and yet don't. Um, I don't remember whose eye description elicited the comment from this chapter. All of them. <laughs> but yeah, we get, we get multiple descriptors of eyes and they're just, I never would have guessed that it's possible to describe eyes. Uh, well, in yeah. this deep a way. In so many different ways, too. I, yeah, I I didn't realize, like, notice it until you pointed it out, but it is used so much, and, like, not in a bad way, okay. uh, but it's used to an extent where it feels like that's how Gideon, like, sees and understands people, is, like, through their eyes, which... Makes sense when you consider that where she comes from, everyone's literally covered in face paint. Like, that's the only feature that's not hidden. So, I I feel like it would make sense that she'd pay attention to people's eyes and look at them a lot. Yeah. You want to know something interesting I just realized? Gideon, to this point, has only been wearing the sunglasses around other things. Yeah. So as you said, she identifies people through their eyes and reading them that way. She's still, mm-hmm. she's closed Completely off. Completely covering yeah, herself. She's intentionally yeah. closing that window. And also blind, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> but no, it, like pretty soon after this, she's like, yeah, I don't actually need the sunglasses anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think she also goes somewhere where it's too dark to see. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> I'm like, that must be nice. Oh, it's like home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's just incredible. And yeah, this this chapter is what everything else gets built off of, right? Because mm-hmm. later when we start to interact more with the necromancers, we learn we've already kind of got the sense of who they are because we've met their cavaliers. Yeah. Um you know, necromancers sans corona. We, we haven't spent as much time with Iante yet. That's um, fine. <laughs> I'm so afraid of her. She's very scary, so that makes sense. She's so scary. Um, yeah. Chapter 12? Chapter 12. Take us away. Cool. Recap. Gideon discovers that Harrow has not returned to the Ninth Chambers in at least 24 hours, which means one of three things. She's dead, inca- incapacitated, or ran away. Determining that she is likely incapacitated, Gideon sets out to find her. After exploring a previously disregarded area, she runs into the sixth house, house, who allow her access to a locked hatch where they discover and retrieve Harrow. We get a little bit of a time skip because we just saw Harrow at the end of last chapter, and then I think it says it goes to the end of the week. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's been a few days, and and Harrow hasn't returned, hasn't put her face paint back on, so Gideon's like, fuck, I gotta go do something. Yeah, I really loved (laughs) the reasoning of how she arrived to, well, she can't be dead, um, because whoever, if she's dead, she was definitely murdered, and whoever murdered her, I'd have to marry them, and (laughs) given who's here, that person's definitely a weirdo, so she can't be dead. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's logic. <laughs> that is a type of logic for sure. <laughs> um, 
at some point, Hero decorates the front door of their room with, like, this creepy-ass skull stuff to the point where Magnus is now uncomfortable to talk to Gideon. <laughs> so, Her- <laughs> so Gideon leaves a note, and once again, we get excellent characterization. Gideon and Harrow have specific fonts for their handwriting, mm-hmm. uh, which is just incredible. Gideon leaves a note in all caps in a distinct font, which is, What's with the Skulls? Um, what she gets response is a much smaller, more gothic font, which is ambiance. Um, I was hoping your art skills would come in handy and reveal what typeface. Yeah, is that the correct? I don't know the typeface. Uh, although it looks like Gideon's typeface is the same as what the book is written in, gotcha. which I like. That's cool. Um, just in all caps and italics. Um, yeah, I don't know what typeface that is for Harrow, but I like it. Uh, I also like <laughs> flipping to the previous page. It's just like, teacher won't leave me alone yeah. because I don't talk back. So he can just talk to me, uh, yeah. which is big, big teacher energy it's as an educator can relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not allowed to talk to me? Great. Silent audience. <laughs> it literally says the teacher says, I find vows of silence very restful. <laughs> I'm like, you've never stopped talking in your life. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> teacher is just a joy of a character. God, I love him. He becomes vastly more relatable as the book goes on and like <laughs> very much more teacher-like. It, it's really good. I've, uh, circled back to like find where Gideon's like okay one of three things happened and it's like one Harrow has been prevented from returning because she's dead impaired or busy two she has chosen to live elsewhere uh three she has run away <laughs> yeah we we even get it just we even get Gideon talking about what she would do if she didn't think Harrow would was going to return anytime soon which was unbutton all of her shirts and button them back up completely mm-hmm. one button wrong uh which would and, distress and put, <laughs> yeah and store her shoes on harrow's bed and i'm like you're the worst prankster yeah. <laughs> like, there's not actually a malicious bone in your body if you think that's bad it's also just funny because her first thought if harrow leaves is not to take the good bed it's to put her yeah. shoes in it. Yeah, I know. That was also really funny. I'm like, no, no, there are so many better things to do with a better bed. Realize, so she basically goes through a whole logic puzzle and decides that Harrow is most likely to be incapacitated somewhere from some questionable logic, but, uh, you know, she gets there eventually. And so she does a bunch of exploring. Um, We get kind of a sense of what the other people do on a daily basis, which isn't much of a surprise. Um, Yeah. And yeah, she keeps exploring. And then most importantly, it starts to overhear a conversation between two of my favorite characters and my favorite buddy cop duo, Camilla Hecht and and Palamity Sextus, the cavalier and necromancer of the sixth house. Um, I love them. They they are some of my favorite characters for so many reasons, in large part because they are the perfect buddy cop names. Just names. 
Like, Calamity, yeah. Sextus, and Camilla Hecht, I'm watching that police procedural, and I never oh, watch those things. For sure. Um, I also, just the way they talk to each other is so scientific and silly. Like, not actually silly, it just, it's funny. Yeah. God, I, I just was kind of reading and didn't uh, look at my notes, so I don't know where this line shows up in the chapter. Maybe you remember but there was there was a phrase written which was necromantically uncharacteristic cleavage and <laughs> yeah. it just it says so much about you and your world building that you can make a joke like that based off of a culture you created and it lands with everyone yeah i just it's just so fucking funny i i know I have read since this week about how some people just do not get this book. Like, they're reading it and, like, they just don't think it's funny. And I oh. cannot understand. I think this book is so funny. I do, too. I, you know, if you're one of those people, I'm sorry that your funny bone was malformed or whatever. I'm not, ac- I don't actually mean to insult you, but I can't relate to you. <laughs> Maybe keep listening to this podcast and learn humor. I, I don't know. I don't you just know. insulted so many people. Um, it's fine. Their, their conversation that once again, Gideon eavesdrops is <laughs> so, so nice. So good. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot of characterization in it again. Mm-hmm. It says some, we get like a page and a half of them just talking to each other and, there are no Here dialogue tags. No. There's no dialogue tags for at least a page. And it's two characters talking, which does make it easier. But at no point do you have to stop and ask who is talking. Because yeah, the you don't have to like go back. Because yeah. the characters' voices are so distinct. Um, and it's just... Even, like, even in writing. like Yeah. Yeah, yeah well... When I say voice, I don't just mean the way they, the yeah. sound they make. It's their word choice, yada, 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 right. the voice of the like character. Like the, the literary yeah. Yeah. form of Sorry. voice, yeah. I'm a uh, aspiring writer. Um, <laughs> you also have listened to the um, audiobook. I have also listened to the audiobook, but I can still see it, even on the tracks. No, I, I could too. <laughs> um yeah, so we get we get like a page and a half of Palamides and Camilla trying to basically doing a forensics breakdown of a scene um, with Palamides yeah. being the like traditional like science guy who's like ah oh, look at you know da 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 and Camilla's just <laughs> very Camilla is very terse she doesn't say a lot but it's she's the hard boiled cop in this equation. Um, <laughs> it's just an episode of Bones. But it better. It is just an episode of Bones. Like a right. thousand times better because, yeah. <laughs> is this book just a really good episode of Bones? <laughs> I actually, I think that this book is just an escape game, which I'll elaborate on later. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to hear that theory. <laughs> but yeah, it might just be... um. Bones fan fiction. <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's not. But I that image is very funny to me. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, we we basically just listened to Palamides and Camilla talk a lot about this building and some of the mysteries going on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, is this? I love, I love confirmation that this house is weird. Yeah, because like earlier, I was talking about uh, not being able to place like the technology of this world. Uh, so I was like, "There's something weird about this house," and then. <laughs> Uh, Palamides. 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 He's like, there's something fishy about this house. And I'm like, right? Yeah, and this is after Harrow, and Harrow doesn't really talk about it. This is the only other real confirmation we've gotten that anybody else is looking. I guess there's a very small part where we see that Palamides, or not Palamides, um, Protes Alois, uh Dulcinea's mm-hmm. Cavalier is looking for something without her. Um yeah. earlier on we get that kind of confirmation. But um yeah, so Palamides is specifically he's doing some sort of at this point unexplained science necromancy, I don't know. Um and discerning that things in the room are different are vastly different ages, which just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Camilla says, maybe the building's shy. (laughs) (laughs) Blamides goes, that is just tough shit for the building. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny. Yeah, their their conversation's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, And then it kind of, it tails off with um, Camilla saying swords don't lie, or Palamides says... Uh, something about anything being able to lie to you. Camilla says, swords don't lie. And then <laughs> and then it says Gideon, and then finally we get Gideon going, the necromancer, because Gideon had never been so sure in her life that she was listening to a damn necromancer, snorted, <laughs> yeah. no, but they don't tell the truth either. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I love Palamides. I love Camilla. They're some of my favorite characters in the series that have amazing characters. Yeah. Um, Palamity's name is spelled far more normally than I expected when listening to this book. I thought his mm-hmm. name was going to be like P T O L A M E D S or something like that. Like something crazy. Like um like that Greek Ptolemy. I don't know how to say it. I don't I don't know. It it doesn't I cannot matter. help you. <laughs> I'm an aspiring writer and an idiot. Um, you you don't have to say words, just write them. It's fine. God, that's so true. The amount of times I've mispronounced a word because I've read it and know exactly what it means, but have never heard it said out loud. And then I say it out loud for the first time and everyone's just like, do you mean this? Like they're talking to a six year old. Yeah. Uh, I've told you about the time that I really hate reading out loud. Uh, but I had to read a section out loud in my like social studies class once, and instead of monasteries, I said monstrosities. Oh so, no! Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so cute. Yeah, yeah, it is cute. Actually, I stand by that. Um, yeah. Um, the thing that I wrote down. So, like, when they finally discover Gideon's there, uh, I love that Gideon describes the size of things in bodies mm-hmm. yeah. so she's like it's three bodies high and this body's done <laughs> and it's just i love that little bit of world building um yeah it's kind of spooky but in a way that i like 
and in a way that makes sense. Um, yeah. Because most um, of what Gideon has spent her life around is bodies. Yeah. I also like that when she's going to open the door, like the hatch, uh, they're like, that's not going to work. Uh, and she tries again. And the quote is, as though offering up to the universe... Offering up the universe's most useless act might endear her to the physics of a locked door. (laughs) It's just so cute. Yeah, so uh, half step back, basically Gideon walks, goes to approach the room. Camilla attacks her, Mm -hmm. thinking she's there to fuck shit up. Calamity's just like, stop that. It's a very reasonable assumption. Gideon yeah. <laughs> is immediately uh, entranced by Camilla's swordplay because Camilla is a huge badass, as previously established. Um, mm-hmm. And then they stop. Uh, basically, Calamities has found Harrow's blood, um, mm-hmm. and it goes. It le- it's coming from a locked hatch, which I do not remember how they open in this moment. Um, uh, Camilla has a key. And basically, like, they spend some time talking, and then finally, uh, they spend some time talking about it around Gideon, and, like, Gideon finally, for the first time, Gideon speaks. And I think it's the first time she's spoken at all since she's landed on Canaan House, because Harrow hasn't been around. Yeah, I mean, since they landed, yeah, because I think she says something to, uh... Dulcinea. Yeah, she says something to Dulcinea when she faints and she catches her, but I think that's the only thing she says. Yeah. Since the landing pad, at least, I think this is the first time she's spoken and she is Mm -hmm. asking Calamities and Camilla to help her help Harrow, which is really, it's a really interesting thing because like and and this this kind of is going along with the sense of like it's partially like Gideon is trying to be a good cavalier and does not want Harrow to die despite hating her. But it's also probably that yeah. thing that we were talking about, like Harrow sucks, but she's also essentially family to Gideon. Yeah. I mean, essentially family also like who's going to free her if she dies. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. there's just a lot going into this, but I, I don't it, even... it feels more genuine than, than that yeah it's not i don't think gideon is not a calculating creature she's she is smart and she can plan but like this i i feel like this is more of an emotional thing like she has Mm -hmm. an attachment to harrow um yeah at this point harrow does not have an attachment to her but (laughs) um clearly but also gideon's lonely and the only person she knows is harrow and teacher i guess yeah which even that, like, I mean, yeah. yeah, at this point she knows other people, but the only person she can talk to is Harrow. Is Harrow, yeah. So Palamides agrees to help. We get a little line that's like he, him clearly wanting to help. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. good. I get to help. Yeah. Um, so they go down the hatch and uh, find, well, first of all, the hatch is like, the hatch is every sci-fi horror game of you go into this abandoned laboratory where something clearly unholy has happened. <laughs> it was giving really big alien vibes. Yeah, alien yeah. dead space is the thing I was reminded of. It's just oh, okay, okay. very, very like, this is an abandoned laboratory where something really bad happened. Um, 
and we get a little plaque where like most of the where the most of the letters are nonsense but the only thing Gideon can read is the phrase it is finished in an exclamation mark and mm-hmm. you pointed this out last time but the unholy catholic imagery of this whole book is really interesting now that i'm seeing it because We are now in a laboratory that's deep underground that is using what, you know, would traditionally be considered blasphemy to Christians, um, Mm -hmm. using the same thing at the end of creation or, uh, or no, he didn't, God didn't This is what, this is what Jesus says when, as he dies. Yeah. Yeah. He says this and then dies, which is very dramatic. Uh, (laughs) I, I love how dramatic he's so dramatic jesus okay. is so dramatic he fucking flips tables with a cord of hair like you cannot read the bible and come away being like yeah that that dude's very even yeah no jesus jesus no. was a man of strong passions uh um, yeah. but yeah i love that yeah no it's it's great i'm not i'm not dissing it um yeah, so we get the we get this plaque where something clearly wrong has gone down. As you were mentioned, as you said earlier, this house all has the sense of wrongness to it. Mm-hmm. And now we have a plaque in this laboratory saying it is finished. Um, this has some sort of connection to the immortal God Emperor. Maybe God was invented in this lab. Um, potentially, the Lictors probably were. I think that's a reasonable assumption at this point. And Definitely. A man, and so now instead of God becoming man, we have man becoming God, created in a laboratory, um, ruling a space empire for 10,000 years, and we have an entire planet of necromancers praying that the tomb stays shut forever. Yeah, it's just reverse it is everything. Su- it is extremely unholy in a way... Um, I spent, I did a lot of studying of the Bible as like a text, um, which is a very strange skill set to have now as a thirty-two-year-old agnostic. But um, I think that you describing it as a lot of studying. <laughs> what isn't isn't your minor literally in Bible? I literally have a minor <laughs> in Bible. Yeah. 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 It's equally... I mean, I'm, I was one credit away from a minor in Bible, and I'm still mad at myself for not getting it, so... Uh, my Bible minor is equally as useful as my major in psychology, so, you know. Um, but <laughs> my, it... Yeah, it's come in handy for me, because I can look at people and be like, I know more than you, please stop talking to me, which comes up a lot. Um... <laughs> but um, something that is present in, like, these stories from older times, not even necessarily the Bible, is the sense mm-hmm. of the profane. Um, there are things you, there are things that by their presence, um, reading it, reading in the Bible in my instance, but it's present elsewhere, you're reading it mm-hmm. and you know from what it's talking about that this is something unholy. And even if there's not an explicit badness attributed to it, it's a clue. And that's something our modern society doesn't really have an equivalent for, because in our society, I mean, what is profane is different from person to person as a whole, but, like, it's much more of a legal and ethical thing. We we judge something as good or bad based on the actions and the consequences of it, 
more than we mm-hmm. judge it by simply this thing being what it is is bad. Um, yeah. Some people still think that. Um, and they aren't really people I write books for, so I don't care. But um, but it is. In, but what I am trying to say is, it is incredible in that in this kind of world where most of us don't have a have an image of anything unholy that isn't informed. This feels unholy and wrong, even as someone who has no ties to like the Christian, but especially Catholic like theology. Everything yeah. that is happening here feels so wrong. And that's yeah. just, once again, a masterclass of setting and characterization of the world as a whole. Yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> there's, there's more Catholic imagery to talk about later than I'm excited to. But um, <laughs> there's one thing in specific I'm thinking of that is distinctly Catholic. But uh, okay. yeah, if nothing, and even setting all of that aside, if you want to, I just love a good abandoned laboratory where something clearly evil went down. Yeah, like, it's obviously spooky, not good, but there's also something about it that's, like, almost ethereal. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but, like, there's something distinctly special about it, uh, which is probably because at this point we can assume that this is where most of their religion has been created. Um or like most of the thing that at least their culture is built off of was created. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, it's so good. I love it. I I love everything that's going on. This is also, yeah. this also f- starts to feel not in a bad way, but it, I really start to feel like I'm playing a video game. Like <laughs> yeah. at this point I can picture like, coming down the hatch and you're reading the plaque on the wall and you're looking around at like the blood on the walls and the clearly disheveled writing and it's just like yeah i i've played this level in several video games yeah sometimes you get to this level and you're like oop i'm not ready for that and you turn yeah, right back around yeah it's absolutely it's absolutely that it's that sense of you come in and you're like i should not be in here yet i do not want to be in here yet um, yeah, you're like, oh, neat, anyway, bye. Yeah, I was playing, there's a, it, this was from, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm not exactly sure. There's, like, an, an a video game RPG of Vampire the Masquerade. It's, like, a, it's set up like a Bioware game. Um, and there's at one point where you have to go into this house that, I don't remember exactly the details. It's pretty clear that the house, like, eight kids or something. It's yeah, but it's set up in such a good way, and I was playing it at like three o'clock in the morning, and I did not do it. I was like, I'm not going in there, and I turned off the game and did not play it again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, and amazing. That's that's the sense of what's going on here because that's what a really good horror game does is it makes you not want to progress the plot. Um, yeah. And that's, it could be a dangerous thing because that's discouraging your gamers from uh, continuing is perhaps not a good thing, but um, yeah, being able to capture that sense of fear is just so impeccable. And I think something that I really also appreciate is that, I don't know if I would just, well, 
I find it really hard to describe horror as a genre because to me, horror as a genre is something that is meant to make you afraid, which is yeah. what I would describe like a Stephen King book as. But yeah. sometimes horror is not necessarily making you afraid. It's just like skeletons and undead and mass murderers and things. So, yeah. but I don't. So I guess, I guess all of what I'm trying to say is I wouldn't describe this book as a horror book, and yet it pulls in this horror element so well that um, it's just really impressive. And yeah. my hat's off it, again to this spectacular book. It's almost like cozy horror, which doesn't feel like it should exist. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. It does just kind of feel like it feels like a bunch of people going in and exploring a haunted house. Yeah, which a, is all I want to do. In so. a good way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just so, so great. Um, anyway, next what happens is they go in and they find this weird bone cocoon mm-hmm. that Harrow has put herself in to, like, regenerate. Um, she's He's fine. Is, like, obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> She will be fine. She's just exhausted herself because she's gone multiple days without sleeping and eating because Harrow is an idiot. Um, yep. And that's basically uh, the long and short of it. Yeah, we do get this really nice line right at the end uh, where Palamides. 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 Ah, okay. One day. Mm, I believe. I'll get it. He says, because I'm the greatest necromancer of my generation. And the unconscious figure sacked across Gideon's shoulder muttered, like hell you are. Yeah. And you're like, great way to end a chapter. It's so great. And I, I think I think even what Palamity says next is, I knew that would wake her up. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like. And he's like, okay, bye now. <laughs> yeah. And once again, it's so good for characterization, right? Because not only is that exchange just funny. And, but it also, it explains so much about Hero's behavior. Because mm-hmm. Palamides and Camilla are so competent and they're working as a team. Hero is trying to outpace them. Yeah. She is in... By herself. By herself. <laughs> and like, it's just like, everything is kind of clicking. At a, this is the part where we really start to get to know Harrow as a person. Um, whereas before she's mm-hmm. been like almost this force of evil nature in Gideon's life that has now swapped because not only have we, are we learning more about her? We've now seen her vulnerable. This is the first time mm-hmm. we've seen Harrow vulnerable. Other than like being anxious. But, yeah. She's been, yeah. she's never been physically vulnerable at this point. Right. Yeah. And so that mask that Harrow is also wearing is now kind of peeled away. Gideon takes her back to bed and forces her to stay in bed. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just adorable. Uh, back on the cozy horror thing, there's also a line where <laughs> Gideon refers to like old bones that are decorating this place as uh, the only human normal touch. <laughs> That's the last thing I have to say about that. I just think it's funny. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's it's just great. I I love this chapter because I we're getting into the chapters that I just love all of them. So I'm gonna probably stop saying that. But um, okay, I say I love every character. So, yeah, because um, I do. 
we go back into we are now at the next chapter uh, if you want to recap it sure uh chapter 13 recap gideon and harrow have a nice chat about how gideon is bored and harrow is going to get herself killed harrow concedes to allowing gideon to help him yeah that's basically how it goes we basically the whole chapter is harrow and gideon arguing about uh harrow not wanting gideon to help and harrow not wanting to rest and gideon being like fuck you let me help Gideon's literally like Gideon Nav talk time. Yeah. Just, like keeps cutting, keeps cutting her off and is like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Let me help you. Yeah. It's just, I'm not going to look very cool if you die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I like that. She cares for Harrow at least a little. Yeah. Um, there really is the sense of like, we're in this kind of shitty situation to get, well, not even, We're in this situation where we have to cooperate. And Mm -hmm. it is in both of our best interests to cooperate. Stop being stupid and cooperate with me. Like, I know we're not friends. We don't have to be friends. I mean, at this point, we literally know that it was the Cavaliers who were given the key rings. So the Necromancers didn't run off without them and literally die. Like, which is what they're mostly doing anyway. Um, Minus the dying part, but. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote down that Harrow is very good at being so pridefully independent that she almost dies. God. Sarah, I know you said Harrow there, but next time just at me. Um, (laughs) 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 Let's move on from that. Um, Okay. (laughs) No, no, you're you're absolutely right. Because it is that kind of thing of Harrow. Harrow has spent her entire life only being able to do things by herself. Yeah. Um, I mean, her parents died when she was 10. Yeah. And she's been basically her parents for seven years. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. Um, she doesn't not, she doesn't know how to cooperate with people, which again, no, I'm just going to add myself next time. Um, <laughs> yeah. She's so adamant about how she was okay. And we're like, my girl, you're clearly not okay. <laughs> I don't know, obviously I do not know how bone magic works, because it's not real, but if you are having to heal yourself in a bone cocoon for multiple hours, you are not okay. Yeah, uh, definitely not. Just, I'm just gonna write that one on my tombstone. Um, yeah, that'd be cute. People would definitely come by and be like, oh, this guy <laughs> had a metal life. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> uh, I... There's a point where Harrow says something and Gideon makes a pun and then the line immediately following it is Gideon, uh, who automatically like assumes puns are funny. Uh, and she would. Gideon has a wonderfully terrible sense of humor and that is a consistent and important part of her character and I love it. I mean... I, same, so I also have a (laughs) terrible sense of humor. Uh, Um, We get a little bit of Harrow's thoughts on what Gideon has been doing. Um, She, Gideon asks it, because Harrow mentions her, Harrow mentions Gideon sucker punching Babs, and Gideon's like, what, you didn't like that? And Gideon's like, or Harrow's like, no, I wish you had killed him, (laughs) which is (laughs) just very Harrow. And then it's just like, don't talk to Dulcinea, are you an idiot? And Gideon says, Dulcinea Septimus is dying, give me a break. 
um, Harrow says she picked an interesting place to die. Which, I was kind of talking about this earlier with everyone's sense of death, or sense of not knowing how to treat people who are dying still being true. Um, Harrow is automatically suspicious, I think, is probably how we want to read this, of Dulcinea. And I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, in some, in a lot of ways. Um, but it's once again, like, well, it's just an interesting quote. We also keep getting poetic comments on Dulcinea's mm-hmm. impending mortality. Um, I think it's really, in, and I, I want, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting how this book has so much death going on and no one knows how to, what to do with people who are dying. Yeah. Still. I mean, they're literally being served by skeletons. Yeah. That's easy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would be. What's sure. the difference between a skeleton and a robot, right? Yeah. No difference. I mean, practically, <laughs> like, you know, you have a robot come and bring you breakfast. Okay. You have a skeleton that's been dead for hundreds of years bring you breakfast. Okay. I like- mean, it's fair enough. Especially when you're, like, surrounded by... That literally every day, all the time, always. Yeah. Yeah. I also loved Harrow's um, comment on a head start is the only advantage one can claim by choice. She's so extra. It's such a... (laughs) I I read that and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, (laughs) She's not wrong. (laughs) She's not wrong, but someone doesn't have depression or anxiety, I hear, or does have anxiety and doesn't know about it. (laughs) Definitely. No... Not even once has this character been anxious. No. Yeah, so um, basically the most of this chapter is Gideon and Harrow getting on the same page. Harrow has mapped out every door, almost every door in this facility because she's free. And is basically marking off what you can go through and what you can't. Um, she did not know Gideon's door existed, so that's one advantage. And there's basically just a bunch yeah. of competence porn of them talking through the rules that has been presented to them in their next steps. Um, Because the rules given were that you're not supposed to go through any door. You're without permission. (laughs) That was the only rule given. So, and apparently Harrow has asked teacher for permission to go to the lower depths. Teacher said, please don't do it. It's dangerous. Um, Harrow of course ignored that. Yeah. And we get this nice little creepy warning from Harrow right at the end. Where she, like, talks about how dangerous the lab they were just in was. And Gideon says, knock it off, we're not in chapel now. But Harrow said, it's not one of mine, Griddle. I'm repeating exactly to the word what teacher said to me. Which I appreciate the, like, immediate gratification of context on why it's so dangerous. Because in the last chapter, the sixth house was talking about how dangerous it was down there. Um, But couldn't give any context to it because... They don't know. Basically, what is down there is um, a bunch of scary, spooky, evil ghosts and things. Um, yeah, apparently that's where the ghosts are. <laughs> yeah, as you asked earlier. Um, what? Why Harrow was so drained is she is trying to pass some sort of test down there where she's mm-hmm. basically thrown all of her necromancy juice at it and can't get through it. Um, nope. We will learn the details of it later um, because... Spoilers, the next few chapters are a lot of them trying to solve this puzzle. (laughs) 
Yeah, and this is where Gideon is just like, nope, I'm coming with you. And she and Hera's like, no. Gideon goes, it's Gideon Nav talking time. I'm not allowed to <laughs> oh, let God. you die. And Hera's like, <laughs> I'm but... asking the questions, bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is also where Gideon starts to sarcastically give Hera titles, like Blue <gasps> Mistress and Penumbral Lady, which hurts Hera's soul. Um, How would you say that last line of the chapter? Surprise, my tenumbrous overlord, said Gideon. Ghost and you might die is my middle name. Great way to end a chapter. Yeah, great way to end a chapter. <laughs> yeah, I love all of the mocking uh, titles yeah. or nicknames or whatever. Yeah, one of them is Twi'let Princess, which has to be a Zelda reference. I right? would assume. I haven't played that one, so. I mean, even... You, you don't have to have played it. It's just, like, the title, right? Like Yeah, I, I just don't have any context for how that would relate to what Hero's doing. But I also assumed that it was a Zelda reference. I, I don't even know if it has any reference to what Hero's doing. Just... No. It just feels, like, too close to be a coincidence. <laughs> that's that's most of the chapter. It's a, lot, it's a very satisfying chapter to read because Harrow has been so frustrating this whole book. And now Harrow yeah. and Gideon are on the same side. So I have the last, or several of the books I've read this year have a nice chunk of monologue explaining the whole book to you, which I hate so much. Yeah. But this is... Not that, but accomplishing the same thing in like a thousand time better way, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, when you're like reading a book and the bad guy pops up at the end and monologues how he's been the bad guy the whole time. And you're like, great. Thanks. This just felt like a miles better way to do. <laughs> Here's all the things you missed, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it just... And I think I think what makes it more satisfying is it is based in that character stuff. One, mm-hmm. Muir is just very entertaining to read. Gideon is funny. Gideon has funny comments on things. The dialogue, everyone's dialogue is funny or interesting. And it's not it's not a recap in the sense of like let's go over who everyone is and because you need to know that going forward. It's like, we are specifically problem solving right now with information that one character had and one character did not. And they are sharing. (laughs) The lack of, like the miscommunication trope is one of my least favorite tropes. And I'm so happy (laughs) that they just, just completely diverted because of this chapter. Yeah. Well, miscommunication, (laughs) I feel like the big problem with miscommunication tropes is the length. Cause like, a day, sure. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. really easy sure. to not talk about things for a day. When it starts to become a huge problem and they're still just not talking, it's just like looking at it from the outside yeah. as a person who does not like to share things. I'm still just like, it would just be so much easier if you just fucking talk to each other. <laughs> I know, right? And in this book, the point at which that happens is when they start talking to each other. I don't like miscommunication trope. I just don't. There are better ways to have conflict in a book, I think. Slash piece of media in general. And that's, yeah, that's the end of this chapter. We didn't go over it very much, but it's just, it's just a very satisfying piece to read, I feel like. It's, this is where things start to feel like they're going right. Like, we Mm -hmm. have, because Gideon has been so lonely the whole time. 
And now we are starting to feel that recede. She's starting to make connections with other people. She's starting to make more of a connection with Hero, and it just feels a lot better. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad's going to happen, so this is just going to keep getting better. Yeah, only the coziest horror. Uh, I I do like this feels very... um finally clicking with your college roommate is <laughs> earlier when you're like talking about how this is almost like a coming to age or coming of age and like leaving the house for the first time. Like this, I feel like this is like, I don't know my roommate at all and we're not getting along and now we're friends almost kind of, I, I liked it. It feels on track with the book so far. Now, you want to do 14? To 14. 14. Harrow and Gideon go down the hatch into the ancient, ancient laboratory. Uh, the test that Harrow can't traverse is this complicated Zelda-esque mess where Harrow has to stand with her hand on a spot and get something out of a room that she cannot see. Um, she's been sending all these skeletons in, but skeletons can't see. They're only bone. You see through eyes, which are not bone. So she, they've just been getting pulverized, and it doesn't matter how many she sends in or whatever. Uh, they're still getting destroyed. Gideon goes and looks while Harrow has her hand on the wall and sees that it's this hulking bone monstrosity that is destroying the skeletons. Um, Harrow sends in some more skeletons. Gideon says, I am volunteer as tribute. Um, and there's this incredible little exchange of dialogue where Harrow's like, no, that's a terror. Why would you want to do that? And Gideon goes, I want to fight it because its arms kind of looked like swords. And, <laughs> so and there's even this part where Gideon's like, I knew is like, I felt like I should give Harrow this really intelligent, uh, necromantic answer like really logic and reason things out with her but instead she's just like i want to fight it because its arms look like swords <laughs> i want to fight it because it would be so metal <laughs> which is just it's so beautiful and harrow's like no yeah you harrow <laughs> says no gideon goes in anyway um the bone colossus even to Her even to gideon is practically invulnerable um when she hits it it like immediately regenerates um, and I think, oh yeah, there's like the first test, there's like a little time limit. So where like Gideon just gets her ass kicked for a little while and then, uh, it's over. Um, the second time around or one of the later times around, what ends up happening is Harrow actually wargs into Gideon looking through Gideon's senses and through Gideon's senses, she is able to see the... I think they're called like fan or the thanaget thanergetic signatures. So basically the the way to succeed on this test is Harrow has to look through Gideon's eyes to see the weak points and have Gideon hit the weak points on once again this very Zelda-esque boss. Um but it's a lot yeah. so Harrow uh figures this all out and then immediately passes out. <laughs> but first griddle, I'm afraid I have to pass out. <laughs> it's Excellent. Yeah, I I uh, kind of picture the energy as being like, you know, when you watch a 3D movie without the glasses on. It gives me a huge headache. Yeah, yeah, of course. But <laughs> kind of like that uh, until, well, that doesn't happen in this chapter. But um, yeah, I, I kind of pictured it as being like almost like when you're looking at a 3D movie without the 3D glasses. And also was totally freaking out about this, because I think it's really cool. <laughs> it's so cool. Like I said, we're getting into the real... We're getting into the real meat of the book. 
and so really cool things yeah. are happening. This is the point where I started questioning what becoming a lecturer is actually because nobody seems to know exactly how you become one and exactly what it entails other than being like this all-powerful necromancer but why are the cavaliers there that's a great question do you want to talk about your theories now or do you want to wait till later i can talk about them in a couple more chapters when there, when they, I have more evidence for having this. I'm very theory. excited. I also do this really terrible thing where sometimes I have a theory and then I feel like I'm spoiling it, even though I don't know for sure that this is what's going to happen. I think you should say your theory because the only thing more satisfying than you being right would be if, as if you were wrong. Oh, you know what? I yeah, do love that. <laughs> whenever Aaron's doing, Aaron, my wife is doing, is like, consuming a story that i have um i i want to know what she thinks is going to happen including on this book because i i just i just love hearing people's theories knowing that what ends up happening you should let me read your book i'm almost finished with the second draft i want to read it okay you can read my book (laughs) not for the podcast i veto that i can't Mm. comment on my own book for the podcast at oh, you God. you how about it will be aaron it will be me and aaron <laughs> i i would not like to sit on the podcast i just think that's a nightmare i but i you look so horrified right now <laughs> i'm horrified in part because the idea of sitting through <laughs> the two of you talking about my book sounds like my hell and in part because the rest of it is a really good idea so <laughs> okay <laughs> that the horror was the horror was, oh no, that situation sounds really uncomfortable. Oh no, that's a really good idea. <laughs> like, So Marcus is going to get his book published. and uh, <laughs> Anyway, chapter first. 15. Um, <laughs> so I talked about a little of this already. Uh, <laughs> smearing things. Um, Gideon petitions Harrow to use her longsword. Harrow says no and that Gideon doesn't have one. Um, so Gideon's like, yes, she doesn't know I've smuggled it in. Um they yeah. they talk about I already said this with the last recap, but they talk about the fact that the Bone Colossus has weak points and the Necromaster has to see them. Um mm-hmm. and yeah, so they basically problem solve, this is what we're gonna do next. And at that point they are in they receive a formal invitation because Magnus and Abigail have their wedding anniversary. In celebration of their eleventh wedding anniversary, um, there is going to be a dinner. Magnus says, uh, <laughs> Magnus says, Abigail can't resist a formal invitation at home and practically issued one for breakfast. Um, I will make dessert, can reassure you I cook better than I duel. Harrow doesn't want to go. Gideon says <laughs> she wants to go. Harrow says no again. Gideon says she wants to eat a dessert. Um, <laughs> which is yeah. adorable and just a really funny way to put Food. it. Um, and yeah, so then the rest, uh, we get a little bit of Harrow fussing over being as presentable as possible out of social anxiety. Gideon finds this very funny. Um, uh, I find it very funny. They show up at- I found it very relatable. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> Anything, anytime anyone is experiencing social anxiety, I'm like, yes, this is extremely relatable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so Gideon basically convinces uh, Harrow that's like, if we're being, you know, the ninth house as it's supposed to be, we have to show up to this formal function because they invited the ninth house, and Harrow's like, fuck. They they <laughs> dole themselves up in their finest uh, necromancer nun robes, um, and yeah, they show up. Uh, the dinner happens. Gideon is sitting near Dulcinea and Abigail, and then uh, and then Jean Marie, the fourth cavalier, and someone else who I don't remember. Harrow is on the other side of the table, sitting next to I think Palamides and Babs. Like and, and Manny's uncle. uncle. That's who it is. Yeah, like the the worst. There's like clearly an end of the table of people that are cool, and into the in another half of the table, which is people that aren't. And Gideon gets to sit with the cool people. Magnus makes a terrible joke that I didn't write down um, that sends Corona into a laughing fit. Oh, please share. I have it because it also sent me into a laughing fit. Uh, Let me pull it up real quick. Please do. What do Marta II, Nibirius III, Jean-Marie IV, Magnus V, Camilla VI, Protesilaus. The seventh, Column the eighth, and Gideon the ninth all have in common. You could have heard a hair flutter to the floor. Everyone stared poker-faced in the thick ensuing silence. Magnus looked pleased with himself. The same middle name, he said. <laughs> would, you, would you like to know, finally, the joke I wrote yes, about I'm that? Yes, I'm so excited. I meant to write Magnus's dad. Um, but I wrote Magnus's daddy, and then, sorry, daddy, sorry, daddy. <laughs> oh, no. Which is not oh, funny. Oh, no. Does Magnus... I, I love him. I don't understand uh, sexy male archetypes. He, Does Magnus qualify no, as a daddy? Okay. No, no. He just has big gotcha. dad energy. Literal dad, not yeah. daddy. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, no, I just... I was just making a joke. Oh, I do no, love him. Yeah, he's so. great. Corona yeah. dies laughing. The uh, MB priest um, has to get the joke explained to them, which makes Corona laugh harder. <laughs> Everyone else is uh, just, it just endures the joke. Yeah, so there's a lot of dinner conversation. Gideon is clearly in the boat of being in the middle of a lot of conversations at dinner. And so she's basically just listening to snippets of a lot of people's conversation, which again, I find very Mm -hmm. relatable. Yep. And so a lot of it is, she just doesn't, she doesn't hear both sides of it. Um, Dulcinea and Abigail are, are talking about Abigail's necromancy and what Abigail does. Um, Iante and Babs are arguing and Sarah, (laughs) The biceps moment happens. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> well, the wretched teens wearing yeah. So earlier, when <laughs> when we get the description of what the wretched teens are wearing, it is just a million earrings each, which is very funny. And uh, Jean Marie, like, there's a little argument over. Um, they're clearly like having an, a little bit of an argument with each other, and then uh, the. John Marie turns and like um <laughs> he's like, this is going to be a weird question and Gideon's just like, What? <laughs> and, and uh she like has to whisper, Night, just how big are your biceps? <laughs> she is so she is cute. so cute. Just once again, everyone in this book is gay as hell. Like, um Yeah. It's just 
Except for Magnus, who I think is the straightest character in this book. So yeah, far. Magnus Magnus is like one of the only characters who I don't get queer vibes from. But I I feel like he's like an Oh ally. yeah, absolutely. I was I was talking <laughs> yeah, about yeah, this yeah. with Aaron that like even Abigail and their very heterosexual relationship, I could totally see Abigail just being like, Yes, as a mousy book girl, I'm Pan and I just happen to be married to yeah. a man. <laughs> I I could see that um for sure as that exact thing um <laughs> and then and then you backdoored your way into no longer being married to a man <laughs> and then I really did didn't I <laughs> not shocking no. at all really if 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 you think about it for two no. seconds it's so painfully obvious now as an adult in a no longer um very gender normative christian world it's just like yeah of course yeah <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> and also surprise doesn't matter at all <laughs> yeah i i really do i i love they're so cute and they're clearly mom and dad uh i also just like that he's very secure in who he is to the point where like he just feels very genuine and like not like he's trying to be hyper masculine like Babs is. Yeah, um, you're talking yeah. about Magnus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a good character. Yeah, yeah. yeah I uh, he's so he's one of the few characters in this setting that is just likable. Like yeah. he doesn't really have any unlikable traits. Um, even his like his, the characters grown at his bad jokes but there's this interesting thing in fiction when you have care when you have a character who is i'm going to say a little bit annoying even though that doesn't apply here when you have a character that's annoying if they don't annoy the other characters they're so annoying but if they annoy the other characters then everyone the reader loves them yeah <laughs> so there's this really interesting thing of like when you have that outsider character that just annoys the other characters, it's almost like you like them if you don't like the rest of the characters, but you don't like them if you like the characters. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but yeah, so even though that's not the situation, I think everyone kind of loves Magnus. Magnus is the only, the first person that's nice to Gideon. Like even tries talking to her. Yeah. he Other is than teacher. But... Uh, he actually tries to include Gideon and be nice to Gideon. The only thing that would even be considered a negative to his character, which isn't, is that he's a bad duelist, but, like, who cares? Yeah. I also love in this chapter that we get to talk to Teacher again, and I'm I'm going to be forever fixated on Teacher, because usually when you're like, here's this Teacher, and they're either really strict and evil and we hate them, or they're, like, the nicest fairy princess ever, and <laughs> I feel like this is the first, probably not actually, but this is one of the first Teacher characters that I've come across where I'm like, oh, no, this is what an educator is like. Um, him being a gossip is 100% educator. Um, <laughs> I feel like I have had several teachers that are teacher. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like, he immediately singles out the ninth and he is like, oh my god, I'm so excited for all the juicy gossip that I'm going to get tonight. <laughs> and, and let me tell you about what I already know. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's an educator right there. Yeah, he's yeah. teacher is just so entertaining, and 
It's also just very funny that his he calls his called teacher because he doesn't know what's going he on. Doesn't either. Do <laughs> he, does, he doesn't he does, do anything. He does. He does. By his own admission, he does not know how to become a lictor. <laughs> he is the gatekeeper. That's it. <laughs> like it, it. Honestly, he's more of a butler than a gatekeeper. But they don't even. The butlers are skeletons. Like he doesn't yeah. do anything, and it's yeah. just great. I love him. He was the best representation of an educator I think I've seen. We get a little bit late after the uh, biceps moment where Dulcinea is like, are your biceps huge or are they just enormous? Knight, please tick the correct box. And Gideon like flips her off, <laughs> which she <laughs> finds hilarious. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dulcinea continues to be very funny. Uh, she's like, I liked that dinner. It was useful, which is just a funny thing to say. Um, Isaac I mean, and Jean yeah. Marie are, com- or Jean Marie's like showing off her biceps, and like they're having a quiet discussion on whether Jean Marie's biceps are good or not because clearly she's comparing herself to Gideon. Which Told isn't you so. Fair. Yours are fine, Isaac. <laughs> it's not like this is a bicep competition. Thomas, Thomas said. You said. said. Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> They just continue to be the perfect representation of teens among a bunch of adults. The most obvious whisper fight ever. Oh, I, absolutely. We're being so subtle that everyone in the room can Nobody hear us. knows. I, I like that we get an explanation for what warden means, because I was like, why? <laughs> why? Okay, after the biceps moment finally happens, Palamedes makes some kind of eyes at Dulcinea, who doesn't flirt with him like she does with Gideon. <laughs> He's so sweet. He's such a sweet little dumpling. He's so cute. Uh, He's a little dumpling. That's a really good description of of him. At the end of all of this, we get Harrow, who basically just runs over to Gideon and drags her out of the party with the reveal that um, Gideon is like, or Gideon, Harrow is like, we have to leave now because uh, Harrow's like, we need to make up time because... Because the Manet's uncle apparently told Abigail Pint uh, about the hatch. And now we have another person that get, that Harrow clearly respects the intelligence of that uh, she needs to gain a lead on. The Manet's uncle. The Manet's uncle continues to be the worst. Really? Next up, unless you have something else, chapter 16? No, I'm good. So yeah, chapter sixteen, um, Gideon and Harrow solve the Colossus puzzle. Um, in the we already knew the method; they just actually go through it, um, which is Harrow kind of sees through Gideon's eyes. Gideon starts to see kind of the Thanergetic, or when Harrow's inside her head, she can start to see the Thanergetic signatures, and so is pretty easily able to dispatch the Colossus. It's just basically hit the weak points in order. Again, very video gamey, but in a way that feels authentic, because I think Harrow's right. This was designed as a test mm-hmm. um, to to gain a skill, so it makes sense that it would have kind of that obvious thing. Um, and yeah, so we get this really satisfying, like, Gideon fighting against the Bone Colossus thing and doing very well now that she knows its weak points. Um, and uh, she takes the thing down. Um, afterwards, they get a key, and Gideon talks about seeing the hazy light things, which Harrow doesn't think should be possible. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah, and is it because that's not Harrow's experience with it, or is it because she just didn't expect it to go both ways? 
We don't, yeah, we don't get much of an explanation from Hero. What it goes is she's just like, you're not talking about, like, there were lights in the skeleton, right? Because Hero couldn't see the thing. Um, she's just like, you were mm-hmm. saying you saw, like, you. it wasn't a physical part of the skeleton. And Gideon's like, no, um, I only saw them after you started warging into me. And well, all we say is, all we get is Harrow saying that shouldn't be possible. And then she just kind of doesn't explain further. It's just kind of a mystery. And, you know, what's funny? I don't know if I know the answer. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Three yeah, books that's later, fine. I... I have a guess at what the answer is hinting towards. Well, I have t- I have two guesses yeah. as to what the answer is hinting towards. One which will be to explained in this book and one which will not. Okay. I mean, my two guesses right now are either Harrow did not expect Gideon to be able to, like, see what she was seeing. Because the point was that Harrow was, like, piggybacking on Gideon, right? So that makes sense. Or that's just not how people relate to necromancy, but Gideon has no way to know that since she's not a necromancer. Yeah. So uh, those are my two theories right now. Uh, so after that happens, Harrow uh, compliments Gideon's swordplay, which I, I both wrote down that nearly gives Gideon a seizure and ha- Gideon having a conniption. It's like she just can't comprehend that Harrow gave her a genuine compliment on something she's proud of, which is mm-hmm. just adorable. It is. I um I also like that Harrow's like, I suppose the test could be like testing us on more than one thing. And I'm like, I mean probably. Like <laughs> most tests are testing you on more than one skill. <laughs> so I'll I'll buy that, sure. <laughs> they continue to talk and they have the key. So they head off. Um the key I think it ends up going to it does it end up going to Gideon's door? I didn't write this down. Uh they say that the symbol on it is the same as Gideon's right. door. Okay. So then, yeah. So we get Gideon's leaving. She's like, you know, things are kind of humming. We solved the test. I got a compliment. Um, Gideon is having a great time. And um, then... Oh, she's full and sleepy. Yeah, yeah she's happy. She <laughs> she got to eat a dessert. <laughs> yeah, everything's going really well. And this is the part of fiction where things start to go badly because we can't have our protagonist have things entirely going well. It was going to happen eventually. Um, as they are going to the door, it looks like they... Uh, oh, so they are leaving the laboratory and they pass the bottom of the ladder that I guess the hatch is coming down. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of that ladder, they find two bodies, which are Abigail Pence and Magnus Quinn. This is the point in my notes where I wrote, in all caps, no, 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 no. Not okay. Yeah. Um, That is the end of Act 2 of the book. We've got a few more chapters we're going to go over, but um, it was inevitable that people were going to start dying mysteriously. I don't know how obvious that was, but just from the genre, um, it was going to happen, and... Oh, I truly forgot. Because one of the things... I don't remember if it's something that you told me or something that I, like, accidentally read about the book before reading it, because I was trying not to read, like, any of those like little like front of the book reviews where they're trying to get you to buy and read the book. Um, But somebody described it as um, like a murder mystery inside a haunted house. And I totally forgot 
about that because I was just so wrapped up in like the world building and characterization. I was like, yeah, some fun puzzles. Do to do to do. Holy crap. <laughs> My favorite character is dead. It's one of those things that afterwards you're just like, of course, Magnus is, was doomed. He was very likable with like no neg- true negative mm-hmm. qualities, and he was a bad fighter. And he had a wife who was also, you know, also dead. He was also adorable. Yeah. We didn't get to spend as much time with Abigail, but she was also likable. Yeah. Now people are dead, and that also is that also has brought up all the stuff teacher was saying about things being dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, now we have two people who are dead. Um, it's a big plot point, and obviously we're going to talk about the next few chapters as the characters kind of get into things. But um, This is uh, also the point where I decided that this book is an escape game. After Dead People uh, was the escape game? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It was uh, Solve Puzzle, Get Key. This is an escape game. Yeah. Uh, and then people died, and I was like, oh, crap. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> not in my escape game. Uh, <laughs> this is also the point in the book. Where I noticed at the beginning of every chapter, there was a different house yeah, sigil. Yeah, the skull. Uh, and at the beginning, yeah, and at the beginning of the book, I noticed that it was always ninth, so I stopped paying attention to it. And then as soon as we hit Act 2, it was pretty frequently 1, uh, because they are now in the first house. So I was like, oh, it's just the house that they're in. But with this chapter, I noticed that it was 5, and I was like, great. Cool. So I went back and looked at all oh, of them. I meant to be paying attention to which which house skull is displayed, and I didn't. I wrote them down. Oh, so anything? Yeah, I've been writing them down now. Uh, yeah, it's basically like what whoever the chapter is mostly about seems to be what the sigil is. So, like chapter fifteen with the dinner party was five. Chapter sixteen with the death was five. But it, it's interesting because that doesn't happen until the very end of the chapter. So, which is why I noticed it this time because I was like, oh, wouldn't it have been the ninth house? Because it's just Gideon and Harrow. But then right at the very end, it becomes fully about the fifth house. I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I, when I first consumed this book, I consumed it in audiobook, and obviously the mm-hmm. skulls were not there. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it I, it gives a fun little hint about the contents of the chapter, and uh, so far I've noticed it's not the way you think it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I do also like that in each act we get all the houses, all the house sigils, skulls, yeah. on top of each other. I, I was looking at them and with what I know, trying to discern if there's like a lot of characterization in this, and if there is, it's so subtle, I don't really know about a lot of it. I mean. The first like house, in the sigils? In the skulls themselves, yeah. yeah. Um, we don't have Not to sigils, go but... deep into it because as this is an audio podcast, no one can see these things we're see currently him. talking about. Um, I guess you could pull it up, but I don't ever do that when listening to things, so I'm not going to expect you to. Um, they're basically just all skulls. Um, the f- skull of the first house, which, reminder, is only the emperor and his lictors, um, is the only like intact, normal human skull. Everyone else, mm-hmm. they, all the other skulls have an identifying characteristic. Um, just a couple that I noticed is that the second house is wearing like it looks like like a the like faceplate of an old helmet, um, like a mm-hmm. Roman style legionnaire helmet, which makes sense because the second house is the military house. 
The sixth house has a scroll in its mouth. The sixth house is Palamides. I think they're the nerd house, basically. They're like, they keeping out the records or something like that. Yeah. And then the ninth house skull is missing its jaw. I don't know what that means, but I thought it was, I think it looks kind of cool. It does look very cool. There are, there are other, there are, all of the sigils have something about them. I think I already said that, but. Um, they seem to line up with the poem at the beginning of the book. And by that, I mean, they line up with the poem at the beginning that of the is, book. That is, that is, that makes sense, actually. Good, good check. On to Act 3. We go, the first line of chapter 17 in Act 3 is, in the early morning after hour and hours of trying even Palamides, or Palamides, now you got me doing it, uh, admitted defeat, we get basically every single necromancer has tried to call back the spirits, the ghosts, tries to resurrect Abigail Penn and Magnus Quinn, and they can't. Palamides was the last one to give up, um... But yeah, everyone has joined and is now dedicated to finding out what happened to them. Um, the first assumption by, I think, all the most of the people, uh, most of the house people is murder. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of questions of like, who would have done this? Why? Um, teacher points out, because teacher is also here, and he's like... He's sad in the kind of way that's like, I knew this was going to happen and I'd warned you. Um, teacher is convinced it is the ghost of the house that he's been warning people about. And yeah, we just get everyone's reactions to this death. The fourth kids are just distraught. Yeah, they're just clearly ineffectively like pouring everything they can and then just crying the whole time. They've also lost their uh, adjectives and are now just teens. Yeah. Because they're now human to Gideon. They're not just these terrible kids. They're just kids. Mm -hmm. So there's just a whole lot of that going on. The way yeah. the eighth house does this is that Silas Octokizaron, aka the Manet's uncle, is apparently siphoning the soul of his nephew Colum. Um, and so there's this really weird bit where all of the necromancers are uncomfortable, even Harrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's doing this clearly, in this unholy world, he is doing something unholy. And whatever it is, apparently really pisses off the Seventh, because Protesilaus goes over and punches Silas in the face. Oh, uh, Dulcinea? Dulcinea. Yeah. Uh, she, like yelps or looks like faint or something because it's having an effect on her like i mean her health is objectively very much worse than everyone else's yeah so he reacts to her yelping yeah and we i think we get we get descriptions of like whatever the whatever uh Manet's uncle is doing is not just targeting his cavalier it's kind of targeting everybody in some effect like it's like just, everything goes great it's kind of he's kind of leeching the entire life out of the room um and yeah like you were saying dulcinea being so much closer to death this very easily could have been fatal for her if it continued um so mm -hmm. protestalaus goes over and punches silas in the face which is the coolest thing protestalaus has done and i think will do i mean i hope he does cooler things but that made me like him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's clearly set up as maybe not a true, not a villain per se, but he's an antagonistic figure. He's pretty standoffish to Gideon. 
Um, yeah. And we don't really get a lot of him. And so him doing this is like, whoa, cool. Okay. Everything is really, really tense. Um, and this is when Teacher, like, this whole time they've been examining the crime scene. And now Teacher's like, we need to move them. And I think it's Palamides is like, no, you don't move a crime scene. But he's like, no, the ghosts are down here. And these <laughs> bodies don't have spirits in them. You do not want these ghosts to get bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is where the ghosts are, for sure. Antha's creepy. Oh, yeah. Ianthe. Yeah, one, <laughs> we get description of everyone's necromancy, which is the first time for a lot of these people, and mm-hmm. really fun. Um, the way Ianthe charges her power is apparently she bites off a piece of Babs. She eats him! Yeah, it, and I don't, I, I, I mean that literally. Like, she takes a yeah. chunk out of him and eats it. And Babs reacts like this is normal. Yeah, that's word for word out of the text. <laughs> like, yeah. So uh, Ianthe was already creepy. Continues to be extremely creepy. Yep. Yeah. It turns out these necromancers are creepy. Hot take. What? <laughs> that seems unreasonable, but okay. <laughs> Basically, this this chapter, the re- the little bit more. This chapter isn't super long, but like, Protest Allowus punches Silas in the face, and the room. What I put is the room is primed for violence, but Teacher breaks the moment. Is like, bring them up because something bad is going to happen if they stay. Mm-hmm. And then that's the end of that's the end of this. That's the end of chapter seventeen. Yeah, yeah. necromancers are not good detectives. <laughs> And it's so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's it's terrible, obviously. Yeah. I just... I think Palamides yeah. is the only one that's a good detective. I think the second could also be decent detectives. Maybe, that's true. But, yeah, may- maybe. But uh, it's just kind of funny because they're, like, walking around. And you you would think that, especially the eighth, would understand that... The bodies are now effectively empty vessels, and this is the place that teacher is told everyone is haunted, so why would they not immediately remove the bodies, you know? But I guess it makes sense they didn't really know the extent of the danger. Yeah, I I guess it it really does feel like it's one thing to have this kooky old man telling you that this place is full of ghosts, and then it's another thing Mm -hmm. to believe it. Yeah, have something bad happen and then be like, oh, he was not exaggerating. Yeah. Him also showing up like he's discovering his classroom doing this terrible thing and totally freaking out about it. Big teacher energy. <laughs> um, uh, and also, there's a you, you wrote this down, but I also picked up on it um, when Palamedes? Palamides. Palamides. Damn it. <laughs> Say it like calamity. Palamities. Okay. Palamities. Uh, and Dulcinea, um, they clearly have some sort of friendship there. Like, it doesn't really feel like he's pining after her. I mean, obviously he's trying to flirt with her. Uh, but I, it feels like they do have some sort of relationship because he he gives her his bathrobe. And yeah. it's it's really cute. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's also something that happens is since everyone had gone to bed, we get description of pajamas. Um, 
uh, <laughs> Corona Beth and Eonthe are in, I, I think it's described as very flimsy nightgowns and Gideon's like, this yeah. is the only good thing that happened tonight. <laughs> yeah. Something like yeah. that. Gideon just reinforces that she's a horn dog this whole chapter. Yeah. And you're like, something terrible has happened. And this is very good comedic relief. Yeah, yeah, you need that little bit of letting the tension off, um, and that's kind of what this chapter is, is that um, cool-down chapter from finding two people dead, just letting that kind yeah. of sink in. Although, at the same time, like, because of that, I feel like there's still tension, like, because there's nothing, like, big that happens to, like, release the tension, It it's still there. <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, carries into the next chapter. We will get into that in the next chapter. Um, but yeah, so Palamides is described as wearing like a silly old bathrobe and shorts yeah. or something like that, and like scruffy slippers yeah. that are now stained pink. <laughs> yeah, you just—he's just the uh, the absent-minded scholar. Like I, he dresses he dresses like I do, but he's far more competent than I am. Um, <laughs> But I and I love him for it. He's so cute. Yeah, he he gives he gives Dulcinea her bathrobe because she's wearing like just pajamas, but like she's clearly shivering because she weighs nothing because she's permanently sickly. She's so little, and uh, so small and cold. So into chapter eighteen, um, Judith, who I don't think we've actually met by name at this point. Judith is the <laughs> necromancer of the second which is Martha Dias, uh, is necromancer. Um, Judith Trott wants to call in the military. Teacher says, no, you can't do that because no one's supposed to come in from outside. Um, there's a lot of, Judith is still wants to do that. People, uh, I, I kind of spilled over with this chapter into the last one a little bit, but, um, there's a lot of discussion on whether the fifth was murdered or not. Teacher disagrees um, saying the uh, creepy shit that is not alive but undead in this house probably killed them, which is distinct from murder because there's no person involved. Judith still wants to call in the military. Um, Corona Beth and apparently all of the third house know Judith from way back. Corona tries to talk her out of it. Um, and so from there they go into, okay, let's narrow down the list of suspects. Who had access to the hatch? Um, the people that have access to the hatch that we know are the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth houses. At this point, uh, I think Harrow or Gideon maybe mentions, uh, probably Harrow because Gideon isn't allowed to talk, um, mentions that Protesilaus punched Silas and Silas is like, oh, is that who punched me? And so then there's like this really tense moment. Silas has challenged the 7th to a duel which everyone is like, that's a bad idea. And they're like, I don't care. Tensions are running really high. At that point, Anthe reveals that she has a key that Babs and Corona did not know about. Um, so she's on the suspect list as well. Basically, there's just like all this discussion on how to proceed. Um, and Palamides is like, okay, let me get down and do some actual science on this to figure out what truly happened. And ev and then he's like, we can go from there. If it's a murder, then maybe we can we can decide from that point. If it looks like it was by an animal or something, I, that may, my word's not his. Then we can assume it's not murder, but danger. 
Um, basically, let me look at the facts and stop reacting to things you don't know, whether they're true or not. And Harrow takes this as a cue to continue to explore the house because she is a uh, bitch with a singular focus. Yeah, teacher continues to have a full panic. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, again, is like walking up on your students doing the stupidest thing. <laughs> it's big teacher energy. Yeah. Also, this is like the third or fourth time that somebody has referred to the third cavalier as turn or whatever and he says prince turn and i how i don't really we don't have enough of a characterization to know why he keeps making that correction other than that he's just an asshole and <laughs> like we don't know how he's a prince you know yeah. like is he a brother is he married to one of them i don't yeah, I don't understand exactly. The only criticism, and this is, criticism is a strong word because I don't know how much time <laughs> there is. The only thing I really wish we had more of in this series as a whole is kind of the regular lives of people on these planets. Because yeah. it feels like the other planet, well, the other planets have a very different like more of what we would expect from like a normal culture compared to the ninth. Mm -hmm. And we don't, it's not until the third book that we get any time in a place where normal people are. Sure. I mean, they seem a lot more connected to each other than the ninth is to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Like the second and the third house are connected. The fourth and the fifth house are connected. The sixth and the seventh houses are connected even through Dulcinea yeah. and um, Calamities. So yeah. Yeah, everyone everyone is more connected than uh, the ninth house is, who are kind of these weird uh not even they're not even an offshoot because they are part of the religion, but it's like they have a, such a specific distinct purpose and everyone thinks they're weird. Yeah. And like mythical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I also was like 0% surprised by Iantha having a secret key. Um, and more specifically that it was a secret from the rest of her house, not necessarily like anyone else. Um, cause like, I, I, again, I don't think that she has any respect for her sister and the way her sister operates. Like, I, I think that she thinks Corona is like frivolous and dumb, <laughs> but I don't, I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe she doesn't, but so far, the impression I get is that they do not get along, and it's, yeah, for a variety of reasons, but that being one of them. Um, I mean, I, too, have a hot sister, so, uh, you know, so relatable, you, I guess. Are you the Yante in this situation, you're saying? I guess so. It is... There's no color about me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, like, the comparison I have for you, this will not make any sense to our listeners at all, it's fine, is you and your <laughs> sister, not not in terms of the personalities, but physically, like, because they're, Yante and Corona are described as looking identical, except Corona is hot and Yante isn't somehow. Yeah, somehow. And it's yeah. like, not, not that you are unattractive, but like, you... It's just like Hannah is somehow quote unquote hot. Like she's she just, is. she looks she exactly really like you, but she's a <laughs> sorority girl. 
and literally yeah i don't uh, and underst- really tan <laughs> yeah i i don't understand ghost. <laughs> yeah i don't understand how those two things how you can look identical and yet completely different um yeah but that's I mean, my comparison i feel like we my sister and i don't like that much alike but we're clearly sisters uh so not quite this much uh and obviously i love her and i don't resent her yeah uh but i do feel as though uh there's some resentment between these sisters which is relatable um but i'm not as spooky as Antha is so i i wish you were as spooky as Antha is i, I strive I, um i wish i, I really was do. as spooky as Antha is like maybe she's pretty cool <laughs> maybe not well i say that i don't not the eating chunks of bass no not that um but i do want to stare into somebody's soul while they think they're hiding in a shadow yeah no that's cool yeah that's yeah that is peak of my dream aesthetic i feel like that's level 20 witch right there just like yeah you think i don't know what's going on and i know exactly what's going on now you know that (laughs) this is actually my final form Yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. And then um, Harrow being, like, almost unfazed and just being like, all right, let's go. And Gideon's like, I'm traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. The chapter ends with Harrow being like, we we just got to go. I'm sick of these people. And, like, we got we got to go open the door. And Gideon's like, yes, tomorrow morning after at least eight hours sleep, Gideon suggested, without hope. <laughs> And then we get a line that Harrow's like, an admirable attempt at comedy in these trying times. We're going now. I really loved that trying times phrase. Very good. Yeah. I think that's really all I have on that chapter. Also, I'm so sad for the fourth babies. Yeah, we get we get a little sequence where Jean-Marie comes over to Gideon and is like, if you know anything, please tell me. Like, they meant so much to us. Just like, please. And Gideon's like, yeah. Gideon's heart breaks, but like, Gideon doesn't know shit. Like... No, but, and, but she says that, like, with words and is struck by, like, the fact that they are so upset that they don't even register that Gideon has spoken to them yeah yeah which is so sad yeah and well there's actually one other thing i almost forgot to mention which is an element to the mystery perhaps um okay jean after gideon says i'm sorry i'm so really sorry and jean marie says i believe you magnus really liked really liked you he wouldn't have let anything happen to abigail uh, she hated heights. She never would have risked falling. And she was a spirit magician. If it was ghost. Yeah. And that's kind of at, at that point. Um, oh, something that we forgot to mention. Apparently when the Manet's uncle siphoned away Column the Cavalier's soul, he didn't go back in immediately. And so there oh, was yeah. some worry at the beginning of the chapter whether he was just going to be like, in a coma and he's just sitting next to an incense bowl yeah and then at this point is when he comes back and manet's uncle is just like you're getting sloppy and then that's it that's all the care given to the guy who was Uh, dead for 15 minutes he's Uh, just a battery yeah i honestly he might be that that team might be my like top scariest um like even including Antha literally eating her cavalier. Like <laughs> this book does such a good job of there's a lot of creepy people here. Not all of the mm-hmm. creepy people 
did it. You know? Yeah. Like, it's, there's not, it's not the kind of instance where, like, they try, Mir tries to hide the mystery by making everyone not suspicious. It's just like, no, here's lots of reasons why you should be suspicious of these people. Really, literally everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Like, there's only, assuming it is a murder, which Mm -hmm. is an assumption, um, at this point. But I think... Yeah, I'm not sold on murder, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, assuming if it was a murder, if this was a murder, um, then it is kind of that thing where it's like, who's in, Who's for sure innocent? I don't... The fourth teens, they didn't do it. Yeah, no, um, no. We know Gideon didn't do it. We know Harrow didn't do it. Yeah. Um, I don't think... Uh, I don't think the seventh house is physically capable of it. Yeah, like... Maybe protests allow us could get the drop on them, but even then, it's like yeah. without without a necromancer, how do you stop a necromancer in a cavalier? Yeah, and, and like, yeah, and she's just not equipped. Yeah, like, well, well seemingly isn't equipped. Yeah, did protests allow us wheel Dulcinea up, and it was like, here we go, guys. Um. Green? And even then, like, could Dulcinea have won? Like, we, I don't think we have seen any Dulcinea do any necromancy. Um, No, uh, so, like, at the beginning of the last chapter, it says that, uh, I think it said six necromancers had tried to revive them. Uh, and I wrote down six out of eight, because there were nine, but Abigail's dead, so now there are eight. Well, Um, there's... There's eight. The first house doesn't have one. Yeah, but the third has two. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 I did a lot of stupidly difficult math to arrive at eight. (laughs) And I kept second guessing myself, but I got there eventually. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Six necromancers try. uh, The two remaining being uh, Dulcinea and uh, the Mayonnaise uncle. And the Mayonnaise uncle tries. And he ends up trying by the end of... Yeah, so she's still the only one who hadn't tried um, that we know of. Unless she does try when she shows up and I missed it, but... I don't think we get any description of it. Um, Yeah, because we got a description of everyone else's, so we still don't really know what hers looks like at all. But yeah, it's like, the fourth house, no. Seventh house, unlikely. Sixth house, unlikely, probably. But Mm -hmm. they could... I think they have the ability, but like, from what he's just a cinnamon roll, though. Yeah, it does. Their per it does not seem like either of them are the murdering type. Like, I think Camilla would happily kill everybody there if there was a reason. But like, sure, yeah, she was ready to get to kill Gideon. But I also just for eavesdropping. <laughs> yeah, but I also think she'd be like, yeah, I killed them. They, I thought they were attacking me. You know, like. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. There wouldn't be any subterfuge about that situation. Um, So, yeah, that pretty much leaves the third, um, the second, the the eighth. I don't think the second would do it either, though. Just because they're so adamant about calling in the military. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Military's not going to protect you. (laughs) I mean, they think so. (laughs) Optics, maybe they would. Yeah. Plus, I mean, we don't really, like you were mentioning earlier, we don't really have a strong grip on 
the military and why what it does. Yeah. Or even yeah, honestly, I, I, why I, it who exists. Are they fighting? That's well, a, who are they fighting? Yeah. What are they protecting? That oh. is a very good question at this point that I don't think is answered in this book. You later yeah. learn what they're fighting, but I'm like, is this security theater? Is it just not relevant yet? Yeah. Um I want it to be security theater because I think that's funny. Um Yeah, it, it strikes with our real life experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess at at this point that might be all I have to say about this chapter. <laughs> yeah. Well let's let's read the last the last chapter in our in our bunch and because now we're getting into theory stuff, so we've gotta we've gotta read the 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 ball dropping. I did, we didn't do this on purpose. I love that this is the last chapter we're doing for this segment. I do too. <laughs> so chapter 19, we go, Gideon goes, or Gideon and Harrow goes to the door that Gideon hid. They kept going. This, this is where they, they look at the sign on the key and find out that it's the sign on Gideon, the door that Gideon hid. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking of memes, uh, Carol goes, oh, you mean X203, which is, I think, what she designated on her map, and Gideon goes, yeah, yeah if you're speaking in Moonspeak, um, <laughs> which is someone who refers to Moonspeak, probably shouldn't refer to Moonspeak as, like, Eastern alphabets, but I just think it's funny to say, I think it's a funny way to refer to something. Um, so, yeah, they uh, they go to unlock the door. Um, Harrow is, like, at so- either in this chapter or one of the earlier chapters when they're powwowing, they talk about the fact that technically Gideon was given the key, not Harrow. And so, since you're not supposed to go into places without permission, it pro- Gideon should be the one opening these doors, just in yeah. case. So, Harrow is like, put, put it in the hole, griddle, referring to the key. Gideon says, that's what she said, because we've got to have a that's what she said joke. Uh, Somewhere in here. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, inside, it leads to a decrepit study. Um, Harrow geeks out over some high-level necrotic shit, um, necromantic theory. Gideon kind of pokes around. Um, she finds a second, a very old seal of the second house, um, and a note which she crumbles and just puts in her pocket. Um, at this point, like, the characters are still processing, and Gideon just kind of blurts out that Magnus treated Harold less like a stranger, um, than, or Magnus treated Gideon less like a stranger when Harrow and Gideon have known each other their entire lives. Um, Harrow says that's no longer acceptable since death is the stakes. Um. Yeah. I mean, they have a really good conversation here. Yeah. And it's, (laughs) I think it's really funny because there's a point where they're just like, what do we do now? And, uh, Gideon's like, let's just never talk like this again. I don't know if it's in this chapter (laughs) or one of the earlier. It is, it is. Um. But, uh, because, yeah, uh, later Gideon realizes that Harrow made no such promise. <laughs> yeah, which is, that's a fun sentence. That's a fun sentence. Yeah. Um, so basically they're poking through and Harrow is learning a lot that isn't exactly explaining. This is a lot about um, the the process of becoming a lictor. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just kind of talking. We find a faded message on a notebook flyleaf written in black ink forever ago and frozen in time, which is 
one flesh, one end, signed G and P. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, everything they find is super old. But, like, preserved. Yeah, weirdly preserved. Yeah. Um, leading credence to Calamity's theories about the age of this place being extremely weird. And, yeah, basically, like, they go through and then agree that it's time to go to bed. Um, mm-hmm. We get the ominous stuff. This is where we get the ominous stuff that, uh... The note. Uh, no, well, yes, but I'm saving that towards the end. This is when we get the line, I think you mentioned it earlier, where she remembers when Harrow was nine, when she had walked in at just the wrong moment. Uh, yeah, and then there's also a line, I, I started the quote at the end, um... So this is halfway through a sentence, but used to have nightmares, especially after what Harrow had done. And I was like, um, is that about 200 dead children or puppet parents? Because both I'm suspicious of the dead children, but we already know about the puppet parents. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We'll find more out. And so, yeah, they... They leave, you get a little glimpse of the fourth teens, like, exploring, which Gideon has sympathy for, because, you know, they're babies trying to find the people who killed their surrogate parents in this haunted house. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to their room, they start to sleep, Gideon uh, lays in bed and realizes that she has not read the note she put in her pocket, takes it out, reads it, and it's like some incomplete sentences um, that don't really make a lot of sense. However, we get the mention of whoever that wrote this note said, give Gideon my congratulations. Yeah, and then it looks like it's about to say however. Yeah. Um, and continue. Yeah, it's it's clearly like this note was taken out of a larger note because the other mm-hmm. there's four sentences listed, all of which are incomplete. And like even even knowing what's a little more about what's going on in this room, I can't really discern anything um, from it. Nope. It's just kind of nonsense, except for the name Gideon. Yeah, I I think it's interesting how it's so like more about the chapter because that's the end of the chapter. Um, Harrow geeking out about necromancy is so adorable. I think it's so cute when people are passionate about something and then talk about that passion. Uh, And I love that just meanwhile, Gideon's like poking through their personal items and like coming to the realization that this is not a bedroom, but clearly like a lab that they spent so much time in that they started living there basically. Um, And then this like to circle back to my earlier comment about about the lectures and like how you become one it it really really feels like it is a total merging of the two of them or at least like a spiritual merging of the two of them the two of them being like the cavalier and and their necromancer gotcha gotcha yeah gotcha so you're feeding into the one flesh one end yeah kind of but then also like the quarters that they've been given they're basically sleeping on top of each other and these quarters they're basically sleeping on top of each other and like living on top of each other so like kind of i mean you definitely have to be in in sync at a minimum yeah i 
I just, yeah, I find, I found reading this was just really interesting to me. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of which I just can't really discuss further. Um, That's fair. I'll just talk about my theories. Yeah, do (laughs) That was it. That was all my theories. Okay. Do you want to hear what my theory was when I read this chapter? Um, Sure. Yeah. Because reading this, I was like, oh, I remember what I thought was going, the only thing I could have guessed as to what was going on. Sure. My thought when I was reading this chapter, and I'll tell you why I was also confused and why I didn't think this was true. I thought we were Mm -hmm. about to enter a time loop. Ooh. No, that makes sense because of like how preserved the room is. And they're like, this has to be magical. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And we find a note to Gideon. The thing Mm -hmm. that makes, that made me question that theory then was that the. The initials on One Flesh, One End are G and P, which G could be Gideon, might make sense from the context, but no, I don't even think there is a P in Harrow's name, and you certainly wouldn't refer to Harrow as P, you'd refer to her as H. Yeah, so my my thought on that wasn't Time Loop, although I like that theory, Um, it was that this is the person who's Gideon who Gideon's mom was talking about like who Gideon's mom's spirit was talking about like she knew oh. something and was trying to like say it and then and then they were like oh clearly Gideon's her child because again moms are only moms yeah nothing uh, else yeah, <laughs> yeah not, nothing else not people um so obviously this child's name is Gideon right uh so that's what my thought was is that Gideon was named after this gotcha. person on accident, gotcha. effectively. Um, that, <laughs> but who's this person? Who who could say? <laughs> yeah. God, now I want to ask you follow up questions, but I don't want to. I don't want to uh, mislead you or lead you to the correct answer. Well, now I want to know <laughs> what what you were going to ask. Uh, well, I'll just ask it. Do you think then that okay. he is Gideon's mom? Yeah, so one of one of the thoughts that I had was that P would be Gideon's mom and Gideon would be her mom's partner, not necessarily like lover, but like necromancer, yeah. cavalier kind of partner. Uh yeah, that that's kind of what I was thinking. Or alternatively, she just happens to know who this person is. Yeah. Great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I, I don't necessarily have, like, a solid thought on who these initials are, just that it had something to do with her and her mom. But who knows what yet? We don't have enough information for that. We really don't have a lot of information to make guesses at this point. I like the stream of information, though. Like, I don't feel like I'm going too long without getting new information at any point. Like, I have not been frustrated about what I know so far. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, no, it doesn't. It this book doesn't feel I I never feel like it stagnates. Yeah, which I mean it does time jumps, which I think definitely helps with that. It's like yeah, and a bunch of stuff didn't happen, and now stuff's yeah, gonna this happen. This is this is kind of what happened to Gideon for a week. There wasn't that much to talk about. We're here in the thick. We're here really in the like thick it. of it now, and I'm just really exciting excited because now the ball's starting to roll and things are happening. Things are definitely happening and i am sad and excited and sad because i love magnus it's fine uh (laughs) i will say we 
spend some time in... There are flashback scenes. That makes sense. Uh, That's all I'll say. I mean, this chapter felt like a flashback, even though I know it's not. But it does feel that way. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so that is to say, this is not the last time we will meet. We will see Magnus on the page, even though he is he is dead. Uh, and that that makes sense. Uh, it's literal necromancers, and also there are ghosts confirmed. Yeah, yeah. And we found the ghosts. <laughs> the question I've been asking for fifteen chapters: the ghosts have been found. Yep, unfortunately, the ghost found us. <laughs> that's more accurate. Yeah. <laughs> That's the end of chapter 19, which was our allotted allotment for this week. We're halfway there. I think uh, next time we're doing 20 through 28. Yeah, yeah. Cool.